How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 52 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, it's weird to say it, but we're back to business as usual. Um, after, you know, five episodes, you know, on the fringes here, we had the four-issue X-Men Plus Fantastic Four mini, and then we had the giant size uh, silent issue, and, yeah, now we're right back to the grind here with, uh, Marauders number seven. Let's hop right on in. Uh, Marauders number seven. Had an April 2020 cover date. The story's called With Emma From... With with Emma From Love. No, no, it's not that. It's From Emma With Love. Ugh. It was written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors, Edgar Delgado. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X's Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale February 5th of 2020. Now we start with our roll call, and it's an interesting one. We've got Callisto, who is also on the cover of this issue. I don't know if we've seen her yet in the Dawn of X uh, landscape, but uh, I guess we're going to be seeing a lot of her in this book. Uh, so Callisto, Jumbo Carnation, Emma Frost, Iceman, Christian Frost, Bishop, Storm, Pyro, Mask, the Morlock, and Sebastian Shaw. From here, you know, two pages of credits. Well, why not? Then we get an info page, which is a text message to Kitty from an unknown sender regarding Verende and drugs. Then, finally, comics. We open in recent flashback land here, where Callisto is approaching the White Palace in Hellfire Bay, where she'd, uh, you know, been summoned. Her, her presence was requested. Now, upon entry, she finds, uh, well, Emma Frost in kind of a state of undress. You see, she's in the middle of a fitting by her stylist, the recently resurrected Jumbo Carnation. Emma tells Callisto that she's early for their meeting, to which the Morlock corrects her, stating that she's actually two hours late. So I guess uh, time flies while you're trying on clothes, though, gotta say, all those hours I've spent trying not to look like a weirdo while carrying my wife's purse around a clothes shop while she's in the changing room, that tells me otherwise. That time does not fly. Now, here's the deal. Emma's got a proposition for Callisto. Well, actually, a proposition about a position. Now, of course, we have a white queen, that's Emma. We have a white bishop and Christian, but Emma's in the market for a white knight. Because there's probably a lot of flame wars on the uh, Hellfire message boards, right? No, no, this is actually the position in Hellfire Inc. Corp. whatever they're calling it. Now, Jumbo, to celebrate or commemorate this occasion, he forks over a long white trench coat for Callisto to try on as uh, he talks about how much he loved her during her modeling career, which is a really neat callback to the Siege Perilous era of X-Men, if I'm remembering right. Now, Callisto, Callisto slices the sleeves off the trench coat, that's 
That's a heck of a sentence. To make it more her style, which is a look that Jumbo, like he kind of swoons over it. He thinks that uh, it was just the just the touch it needed. And she trades him a blade for the, uh, I guess we can call it a trench vest. And Jumbo sweeps her into his arms to thank her. From here, we jump to the present. Now, Callisto is on Island M, where she greets the incoming marauders. Uh, Christian Frost is also there, and he and Bobby make out a bit. I didn't know they were officially in a relationship, but I suppose... I suppose it works in that old soap opera sort of thing, where it's like, we only have two gay or black or Asian characters, so they just put them together. Like that old soap opera trope. I guess it works in that sort of way. Though I, I don't know if they have an actual relationship or not. I suppose we'll find out. Now, Callisto tells Bishop that she expected them sooner, to which he asks if Kitty has checked in yet to uh, let home base know about their tangle with Donald Pierce and company. Callisto says Kitty hasn't called in nor shown up. Now, this is troubling to Redbish, uh, as he uh, as she should have been beaten them there by a day. Callisto then sets eyes on Storm, who isn't dying of a children of the vault disease, so that's good. Uh, she greets Aurora by tossing a blade directly at her throat. Storm catches it, and the uh, two old friends slash rivals embrace. Pyro thinks this is pretty hardcore, and uh, he's not wrong. He suggests that this sort of aggressive behavior is the reason why the Brotherhood were never able to best the X-Men. And uh, yeah, probably that and the fact that often, more often than not, the Brotherhood kind of sucked. That probably had something to do with it. From here, we shift over to the Verendi house in Madripoor, where the Hellfire kids are watching this conversation play out. You gotta remember, they got an inside man in the form of Yellowjacket, who is currently, you know, fantastic voyaging all throughout Pyro's bloodstream. Bishop tells Pyro to head back to Krakoa, and he'll double back to Madripoor. Cade Kilgore is pleased to learn that soon, Pyro, and, of course, Yellowjacket, will be arriving at Krakoa. And he's also happy that uh, they got a little bonus here. They now know about Island M, so that's a good thing. Uh, Kilgore then addresses the Russian ambassador, and I think it's the same one that we've already seen a few times throughout Dawn Hawks Pox Docs. And I think I mentioned, or probably mentioned every time we see her, that she looks a bit like Dr. Gregor from Orcus. I mean, they definitely have the same hairstylist anyway. Now, the ambassador is impressed with what Verendi has and is about to uncover and suggests that the government, well, any government really, would pay top dollar for such information. She also suggests that the Russians will create a leaner and meaner power-dampering dealie. Rather than taking up an entire suit of clunky armor, it'll now be the size of a sidearm. I gotta ask, why don't they just copy, like, the power-dampening collars that, like, every other villain on the planet seems to have these days? I mean, it's not that novel anymore, is it? Uh, Cade bids her adieu with a Verendi hand sign, which uh, which is kind of awkward. It's like you put your middle finger and your ring finger up while you close the rest of your fingers down. It's like a weird like Boy Scout salute, but far more awkward. I mean, try doing that. It's not as easy as it looks. Um, now, from here, we jump to the Madripoor side of a Krakoan gateway. And this is where the Verendis have staged a welcoming party for Bishop in the form of many, many mercenaries. Now... Saying his first rodeo, so cleverly, Bishop doesn't just saunter through the gate. Instead, he drops a live grenade on the other side, which goes boom, taking out many of the mercs. He then dives through, guns literally blazing, to take out the rest. He's confronted by Hellfire Tot Manuel and Dookie, the white king of the Hominis Verendi. Manuel informs v- Bishop that he ain't scared one bit, considering Krakoans have that pesky kill-no-man rule. 
Now this weirds Bishop out a little bit. After all, how could Enduki know about Krakoan law? Bishop then proceeds to pummel the hellfire out of the kid, saying that there's no Krakoan law restricting him from effing up a man. So, there's that. Though I am surprised that maybe the Marauders aren't exempt to that rule, just like every other X-team. Uh, now, in Manuel's pocket, Manuel's knocked out, of course, Bishop finds a letter about a boat docked at Madripoor. And next thing we know, Bishop is wearing some stolen Merc armor and readying to board the thing. From here, we shift scenes to Rio Verde, Arizona, where Callisto is meeting with her fellow Morlock, Mask. Gotta tell you something. As a guy who lives in Arizona... I'm used to comics writers and artists using, like, the usual Arizona shorthand when it comes to how they present our fair and barren state. It's usually a lot of cacti and cliffs, which, yeah, we've got a lot of those, but it ain't the entire state. So I'm going to hand it to uh, Duggan and Caselli for doing their homework here. They nailed Rio Verde here because uh, it's depicted as a golf course, and that's basically all Rio Verde is. So that's hats off to uh, Duggan and Caselli. Uh, back when I was... Uh, I don't know if I've talked about it on this program, but I know I've talked about it on the channel. I was a windshield repairman for a number of years. And back when I was in that business, uh, it would never fail that around March or April, which is known in Arizona as snowbird migration season, I'd have to drive out to Rio Verde, Rio Verde three or four times a week to patch up some glass before the folks split town to avoid you know, the hellish Arizona summer ahead. And it really, it's really in the middle of nowhere. It's a, like a weird oasis uh, in, in how green it is. Like, I think there's only like two ways to get there. You know, you can either approach it from the south if you come up through Fountain Hills, or you can uh, be way up in North Scottsdale and you can head east uh, along, I think it's Dynamite, Dynamite Boulevard or Dynamite Road. It's just a barren wasteland of desert and uh, switchbacks through cliffs. And it's, it's, it's a wasteland. But then you get there, and it's this lush, green, golf course, you know, golf course community. And the town is basically one street. On the west side, you get neighborhoods. And on the east, a giant golf course. So, uh, you know, good on you, Marauders Creative Team. Thank you for actually doing your homework. And uh, for once, not depicting the state I live in as like a Wiley e. Coyote Roadrunner cartoon. Because that's usually how it looks. I remember, uh, what was it? Um, the Jeff Loeb Nova series, um, where the no, where the kid Nova grew up in Carefree, Arizona, or was living in Carefree, Arizona, which was drawn to look like a, like a real one-horse western wasteland town when Carefree, Arizona is actually very, very, uh, it's a very wealthy, <laughs> it's a very wealthy town. I've done a lot of jobs in there, too. I've, uh, I believe that's where I actually had to patch a uh, Rolls Royce who was up in Cave and in, in Carefree. So I, I do like that Rio Verde was was depicted as Rio Verde, where so often they take the the easy way out of uh, of showing Arizona. Anyway, enough about that. Let's uh, let's talk about the scene the scene we got here. Callisto is there to drop off the Morlocks allowance from Krakoa. Now Mask is annoyed that they're in leagues with the top dwellers or whatever. Kalisto reminds him that the Morlocks actually chose this location, which, hey, as far as locations go, you could do far worse than Rio Verde. She then sinks Mask's putt with her dagger. It was like he, he missed the putt, made the, the ball got right to the cup, and she tossed a dagger, knocked it in. And then she declares the sunk putt as a touchdown. Which is shorthand for, I don't know, sports, right? 
Come on, you could do better than that. Now, Mask asks how Callisto feels about working with a group that has named themselves after the Marauders, which, you know, is a callback to the, uh, the Mutant Massacre. Uh, Callisto shrugs it off, doesn't put too much thought into it. From here, we jump to an info page from the X-Desk, and uh, we learn that they're studying folks who are taking the Krakoan drugs, which is probably a really good idea. Also, we get a snippet from a neighbor review website from sunny Rio Verde, Arizona. And the, the normal folk aren't really getting used to all the new weirdness that abounds, and uh, rightfully so. It's, a, it's an aged community in, uh, in Rio Verde, a lot of, a lot of uh, elders. So I would assume that uh, seeing a bunch of Morlocks walking down the street probably, uh, probably wouldn't, wait, probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't pass the test. Um, we now shift to the Quiet Council, and uh, eh, we got a few people sitting in the wrong seats here. Um, actually, the only correct you know, season of the Council, because the, 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 the Council is broken up into four seasons, uh, the only right one is Emma and Shaw being together. Uh, every other trio is all messed up. Anywho, they've put something to a vote. I guess it doesn't really matter what at this point. But they arrive at a deadlock. Uh, Kitty's not there, of course. And Mr. Sinister has abstained from taking a position. So it's 5-4, five, 5, four, five against whatever they're discussing. Uh, maybe they're picking a new bagel provider. I know that uh, that gets pretty heated when you're in a, when you're in a, like a management group. That, uh, that could be a scary scene. Shaw turns to Emma and comments that it's regrettable that Kitty couldn't make it. Emma, you know, she pretends she knows what's going on. She states that, uh, eh, Kitty just got held up somewhere. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Shaw smiles, and of course he knows far more than he's letting on. And we close out the issue with a fishing boat on Madripoor Bay. And the fishing folks pull their net out of the drink, only to find Lockheed, who may or may not be alive. But that is Marauders number 7. Next episode we'll be talking about Excalibur number 7, but let's talk about what we just read. This was a good issue. Um, It's kind of weird going back to, like, just business as usual here, because (laughs) despite the fact that I really dug this, I enjoyed my time with this issue, I just don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about it. You know, um, we've added a white knight in Callisto, and, you know, that's pretty cool, right? Um, we're moving forward with the ominous Verinde plot, which is also cool. Uh, we had Stefano Caselli art, which, outside of messing up the Quiet Council's seating arrangement, was cool as well. But this was a transitional issue, you know, and as mentioned, it was a darn good one. It unfortunately, however, doesn't lend itself to, uh, much in the way of analysis. Um... It really just is what it is. Uh, we don't get any clarity on the fate of Call Me Kate, but uh, I don't think we needed that just yet. You know, um, I like the way that they're they're playing it close to the vest here. You know, Emma doesn't know what's going on, but she's lying to make it appear as though she does. And sure, he's playing cool and curious despite knowing exactly what went down. It's a, it's a really good scene and a really good use of these characters as well. Um... It's weird. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I'm cheating here, uh, or shortchanging you, fine listeners here. But uh, I don't know. There's not a whole lot more to say. I think the last thing any of us need is just me talking and vamping for the sake of it. So we'll just put a pin in it for now. It was a good issue, a transitional issue. It's you know we're 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 shifting into the next phase of the story here. We're putting things in place. Just not a whole heck of a lot to talk about. Um, if anybody out there 
has anything to say about this issue, please let me know, um, and uh, we can discuss it. But off the top of my head, it's uh, kind of just an issue. Um, now, speaking of reaching out, we have no mailbag today. Today, I, I woke up to an empty mailbag, so that's a, it's a sad thing, but not totally unexpected. You can't have mail every single day. I probably shouldn't have uh, included so much mail in the previous uh, two episodes, but... Uh, you know, when I, when I get mail, when I get uh, a tweet or a contact, I, uh, I'm very excited to share it. So I, uh, I don't exercise patience very well, but uh, hopefully we'll get some mail in the next couple episodes to, uh, to share. Uh, but instead, in lieu of the mailbag, I do have a little bit of housekeeping to discuss. Today, I spent several hours that I probably should have been studying um, putting together the order for the next... 50-odd episodes of this show, which uh, might be a bit... I don't know, might be putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Uh, but if nothing else, I, I think big, right? Um, while I put together the list of the 50 next episodes, I also created the cover art for the next 20 or so episodes. I think I think I got us up to episode 73. So uh, we got the next 21 episodes. We're all set with, uh, with cover art or album art or whatever you call that. Whatever you call the weird, you know, the thing with the circle and the X that I that I put a picture behind. Um, and I figure that I could share with you all what to expect over the course of the next few months. And I can actually give you, uh, you know, real episode numbers to look forward to. And that is, of course, assuming anybody is looking forward to anything I do. Uh, I'll just pretend. I'll just pretend so I don't, uh, so I don't cry. Um, now, Wolverine is coming very, very soon. We're going to launch Wolverine Volume 7. I can't believe it's Volume 7. That's going to be Episode 58. So this is Episode 52, so not too long from now. That is a big, fat book. So uh, I'm, like, looking forward to it and dreading it. So, But we'll, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> we will. Uh, Cable will get his own series, and that will follow in Episode 64. So also not terribly long from now. Uh, we jump ahead to episode 70, and that's where Hellions will begin. And then episode 85 will kick off X-Factor. Uh, leading into X-Factor, I've decided to put the Empire miniseries uh, in episodes 81 through 84, coming right after, I believe, the coverage of X-Men number 9. I think that's the order that they're in, but uh, we'll get that out of the way the same way we did Fantastic Four, uh, just one clump. Uh, we do have four more of the Giant Size issues to discuss. Now, Giant Size Nightcrawler will be episode 69. Giant Size Magneto, episode 77. Giant Size Phantom X will be episode 88. And then we'll wrap the whole thing up with Giant Size Storm in episode 105. Now, uh, X of Tens. The coverage for X of Tens will begin with episode 109, and that'll be X of Swords creation, or sort of, what is it again? I keep, I've been calling it X of Tens so long, I don't know what the real name is anymore. I think it's X of Swords, so, uh, or Ten of Swords, whatever. X of Tens is what we're calling it. Um, X of Tens creation will be episode 109. Uh, episode 108, we'll look at the free comic book day issue that I believe leads into X of Tens, uh, I flipped through it, and I know there's a lot of tarot card imagery in there, so I'm just assuming that it has something to do with it. Uh, episode 107 is going to be a weird one. Uh, it's a book that I wasn't intending to include on this journey, and that book is Juggernaut Number 1. And it's weird, because just, 
just yesterday as I'm recording this, uh, Evan Bevins reached out to ask if I'd be covering it. And I didn't even have to think about it. I was like, nah, <laughs> no, not covering Juggernaut number one. Because I thought it had nothing to do with Dawn of X. But they included it on the checklist in the back of the Dawn of X books. Which is, you know, that's like Christonite, you know. I, I have to do it now. The completionist in me don't won't allow us to skip it. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll be like in the Dawn of X milieu for its entire six issue run, but you know we'll keep an eye out. You know we'll we'll keep a we'll keep an eye out. See if it shows up in any more of the checklists in the back of the books. If it's just the first issue, that's cool. We'll cover it. If it's the whole six issue miniseries, eh, we'll cover that. You know it's not a big deal. Uh, the problem with that is that. Uh, I assumed it had nothing to do with Dawn of X, so I didn't order it. So now I'm going to actually have to go out and buy it. And, you know, I had this conversation on one of the social medias over the past few days that uh, it never fails. The book that I, I, I choose to skip, uh, like, it'll always be the, you know, retroactively hot book. You know, so now I'm assuming that, like, like a juggernaut number one will have a single panel cameo of like a, some character that bleeding cool will tell us to like keep an eye out for. So then all the, uh, all the ridiculous speculator apps will have it marked at like $15 or something. And I'll get stuck <laughs> having to pay some crazy price for it or buying a, a penciled covered third print or something. Who knows? Who knows? But, uh, not, not a book I was expecting to cover here. Um, but a book I discovered that we would be when I was uh, going through the uh, the old checklists uh, earlier today when I should have been when I should have been studying. Um, now that's being that Juggernaut story is written by Fabian Niciesa, and I, I like Fabian Niciesa a lot. Um, a lot of my ex fandom is uh, is through Niciesa's work, uh, Niciesa and Lobdell. So I think that'll be pretty cool. I don't have a whole heck of a lot of interest in Juggernaut, um, but hey. You know, that's uh, that's what this show's all about Broadening the horizons And uh, and experiencing things that are that are new and different So, we'll do that And, uh, yeah, that's uh, I guess that's that's all we got today It's a little bit of housekeeping if, uh, if anyone out there has any questions about a particular issue Like, say you really want to know when we're going to discuss Hellions number three Yeah, reach out, you know, hit me up And I'll, I'll let you know uh, when that'll be And, uh, you know, what approximate... Uh, <laughs> Group of days you could uh, you could block out for that one. So again, uh, big assumptions on my part, but uh, you got you gotta you gotta think big, right? But that's where we'll leave it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so very very easily. I'm very easy to find on the Twitter machine at Ace Comics and via email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and we have xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's the Facebook group over at 90s X-Men on Facebook where I posted, today I posted a picture from the uh, the Marvel Illustrated Swimsuit parody issue uh, from 1991 that had uh, Boom Boom, you know, old Tabitha What's-Her-Face in a uh, very skimpy bikini. I believe she was probably... About 16 or 17 years old at this point. And behind her, Cable is leering very, very creepily. It's uh, it's quite an image <laughs> that you can see over on 90s X-Men in fa- on Facebook. Uh, Richter is also very excited to see this, which uh, I guess uh, I guess we didn't uh, we didn't decide anything about Richter just yet. So 
there's that if you'd like to see it. Um, you can find the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. A lot of stuff going on there. A lot of archives there, and uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in the works. So keep an eye there if you have any interest in anything I do. And uh, if you've listened for this entire episode, chances are you might. So uh, I thank you for that. Uh, but in, in in all honesty, I do thank everyone for hanging out here today as we get back to X lapsed as usual with uh, you know the main line books here. Uh, it means a lot that you're uh, you're still with me, and I hope that uh, I've earned your listenership moving forward. So uh, I guess that's about all I got to say. Just uh, thank you all so so much, and uh, I will talk to you again as always, real soon. See ya. Chris, welcome to episode 57 of x Lapsed, where uh, your uh, humble host is still dealing with uh, a boatload of allergies. I uh, hope it's not too apparent or too distracting as we uh, work our way through these books, but uh, it's been a long, hot summer, and uh, even though we're in, we're about to go into the second week of November, um, my, uh, my local state, Arizona, we're still holding on to the 90-plus degree uh, weather here. Um, if the, uh, if the little weather report on my watch is any indication, or if it's correct, hopefully it is, we only got two more days of it, and then it'll drop down to uh, the high 60s and low 70s Fahrenheit, which, uh, I mean, it feels like it usually happens before now. This is, this is a very, very long summer, but uh, enough of that nonsense. Let's get into the book that we're going to be discussing today, and that is Marauders Number 8. This had an April 2020 cover date. The story is called Furious Anger, written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Robinson White Sabolski. This one had a cover price of $3.99 and went on sale February 19th of 2020. 
So, we open on a field trip to Mars, where a group of uh, young Krakoans are being given an intergalactic tour by the Frosts, Emma and Christian. Now, this is apparently where some of the magical meds are grown, and we can see that they're being tended to by some Krakoan automatons that have been created by Forge. They're really creepy-looking, um, humanoid-shaped things. Now, just as this tour is about to head to its next destination, the Savage Land, it is thankfully interrupted, because who the hell wants to go to the Savage Land? Come on, nobody. And nobody wants to read about it either. It's interrupted, though, by some bad news. Emma receives a psychic call from Bishop. Now, it seems that Emma is the only telepath who could hear his shout, and she posits that this is due to her using the cuckoos as a sort of strategically placed, like, Wi-Fi boosters. You know, if you, if you have a very big house and you have just the one Wi-Fi router and you, you, know, you put the little plugs around so you can get better signal, I guess she's using the cuckoos like that. Anywho, Bishop is on that salvage ship that we saw him board last issue, and he's requesting backup. He asks uh, Emma here to look through his eyes, and when she does, she sees a bound body bobbing in the surf of Madripoor Bay. Emma physically manages to keep her cool long enough to inform the children that the tour, eh, we're going to cancel, we'll resume it another time. Once they're gone, however, she collapses to her knees, and she gives a, to me, my marauders, which, yeah, I know what they're going for here. I'm pretty sure we've seen a to me, my dot, dot, dot for like just about every Dawn of X team, but this trope is getting so tired. I, <laughs> I am so bored of the to me, my X-Force, to me, my fallen angels. It makes me feel like uh, anytime um, I'm reading like a, a Batman book or a Bat-centric book and a new creator comes on and you can tell they're chomping at the bit to do the scene with the damn pearls, you know? They, they, they're going to work that damn scene in there where we're going to go to the origin, we're going to see Martha's pearls scatter all over Crime Alley. They're just chomping at the bit to do it. And I feel like a to-me-my dot-dot-dot insert team here is kind of an X-Men equivalent of that sort of thing, and it's, uh, it's getting tired. <laughs> From here, we got credits. Then our roll call, and it's Christian Frost, Emma Frost, Iceman, Bishop, Storm, Sebastian Shaw, and Shinobi Shaw. Now we hop back into comics with Iceman's arrival at Christian Frost's vessel, the Mercury. And it looks like he's the only marauder who's able to answer this call. Emma says he'll be more than enough, and uh, that they're bound to go back to Madripoor. Bobby asks what's up, and Emma suggests that he prepare himself for some bad news. He also comments that the Mercury is a strange boat, to which he's told it's not a boat. Hmm. Back to the barge, the body has just been retrieved from the bay by a Verendi goon. Now they're planning on performing an autopsy and deducing the DNA, all that good stuff. Bishop is watching from the shadows here, and when the time is right, he strikes. He hits the goon with a stun blast. He then unbags the body and confirms what we readers already know. He does take a piece of her bindings and uh, pockets it for uh, subsequent study. I mean, we know that that's uh, some Krakoan stuff, but uh, maybe Bishop will find out that uh, pretty soon himself. Just then, Bishop is found by another goon, and so he fires another shock blast. Emma is still telepathically linked to him, and she instructs him to make it to the stern of the ship. Though, if that's not an option, she tells him to, quote, shelter in place. Which, uh, that's a term that I'd imagine much of the planet wasn't overly familiar with back in February. What a difference a month makes, isn't it? Huh. In fact, Bishop himself doesn't even know what shelter-in-place means, so, uh, how about that? 
Suddenly, the barge hits ice, which naturally catches the goons by surprise. Then, the inside of the hull starts getting a little bit frosty. Well, well, freezing, actually. One of the baddies suggests that the marauders are here, but they're not all that worried. They figure they're safe behind their, you know, big bay door here, and the only one that can get in there is Magneto. But, uh, he's, uh, not right, uh, because, uh, they've got Iceman, and, uh, that big old door at the, to the hull starts to frost over, and then, bada-bing, bada-boom, or bada-thum, actually, Iceman is able to bust his way in. Now, before the goons can start firing, Bobby gives them all some very, very brutal frostbite. Fingers are frozen and snapping off when they pull triggers. It's, it's really quite a scene. Bishop reminds Iceman about that pesky Krakoan law, to which Bobby just freezes one of the bad guy's arms and then smashes it to pieces, which I figure will probably leave a mark. Bobby gives the goons a warning, and he pretty much dares them to bring the fight to his door. Then he and Bishop blink out back to the Mercury, which Bishop refers to as Emma's sub, to which Bobby tells him that it's not a sub. Hmm, not a boat, not a sub. I wonder what it could be. There, there, there was a, there was once a character called Mercury, right? Ah. Anyway, Bobby meets up with Emma to ask if they're heading to Arbor Magna for, uh, for Call Me Kate. Emma replies that she's got something she needs to attend to first, and uh, that something is tell Storm. And so, we jump ahead to the moment where she does. Now, Storm is understandably furious and blames Emma for everything. She says Kitty should have never been allowed to leave Krakoa until they knew why she couldn't use the gateways. Emma, eh, she tries to reason with Storm, suggesting that Kitty would have never agreed to any of that. Her leading the Marauders, surrounded by Omega Level and otherwise extremely powerful mutants, was Emma's sort of kind of way of protecting her the best she can. Storm slaps Emma across the face. Storm continues to cry, coming to grips to, with coming to grips with the fact that not only did Kitty die, but she died alone. Lightning crashes and all that because she is just out of control. Then, Emma and Storm embrace. Emma attempts to give Storm a telepathic gift. And it's uh, basically the way she felt when she saw Cyclops' resurrection back in uh, House of X number 5, I think. It's hope, you know? She's given her hope. And the idea that anything could happen in this new landscape here. I mean, life is kind of just a thing, right? Now, this helps Storm to realize that Kitty's story is very, you know, very likely to continue, right? It's not over yet. From here, we shift scenes to a Shaw family dinner where we're about to be introduced to their pair of Black Knights. <sighs> now, I've been waiting to see these geeks again, but I haven't been looking forward to it. Uh, folks, we've got ourselves some more upstarts getting involved in the form of... Uh, the friggin' Fenris twins. Now, the uh, first thing these fools do is complain about having to wear black, since white is more their style. Sebastian suggests that, hey, you know what, one of these days I might be able to help you with that. We might have some white seats opening up soon. From here we get an info page, and it has Sinister Secrets. It's been a little while since we've read any Sinister Secrets, so let's, let's see what they're all about here. Sinister Secret number 16 is uh, from Sinister to a certain K, pulling a power move of sitting out a meeting. And I'm guessing that this is probably a reference to Kitty not being able not being able to attend the latest Quiet Council get-together. I mean, we know why she couldn't, but I guess Sinister just thought she was uh, just sitting it out, right? 
Uh, Sinister Secret number 17. A certain quirky Q not getting his clothing order from Jumbo Carnation. And I figure that's almost got to be Quentin Choir, uh, whose whole ascent during the Morrison run at, you know, the riot at Xavier's story that spun out of the murder of Jumbo. So they do have a link there, and I'm guessing that that's probably, you know, that, that might be what we're talking about here. Sinister Secret number 18. It's about Stinger, and I'm assuming this is a reference to a former villain from that, you know, that goofy-ass alliance of evil back in the earliest days of X-Factor. Um, from the secret here, I guess, uh, she's the first mutant in the post-Krakoa world to get knocked up. Uh, it talks about her, you know, having a baby bump, so, um, just putting pieces together here. Uh, Sinister Secret number 19, it's something about seeing double and gross punchable faces. And, uh, this one won't stay secret for long, and, well, actually, if I'm reading it right, the previous scene kind of spilled the beans on this one, because next thing we see is Sinister Secret revealed... And it's all about Fenris, and, uh, oh boy, how do they suck. So on that, Sinister and I agree. They are pretty terrible. Now we wrap up this issue back in Madripoor with that fishing family we met at the, la- the end of last issue. Now the kid is trying to feed that tiny purple dragon they found some food. The father feels like this is a waste, to which Lockheed burps out a bit of flame. This tickles the tot, and we are out of here. The next issue we'll be discussing is New Mutants number 7, but uh, let's have a little talking time here and uh, and talk about what we learned today. Um, it was another fine issue. Um, not only that, it was a necessary issue, in which we get to see how many of the Marauders react to the death of Call Me Kate. And they, you know, they all reacted pretty much the way we'd expect. Um, yeah, Emma, you know, she falls to her knees, having put Kitty in this position to begin with, only to have her, you know, perish. And we've seen Emma lose her young charges before, right? So it stands to reason that she would just be, you know, kind of shut down over this. Also, it was, you know, perfectly in character for her to wait until she was alone to do so. So she was able to keep up the facade of, you know, nothing's wrong until, uh, until she was alone. And it makes sense to me. Now, Bishop, making the discovery, he reacted with caution. And he maintained his composure even after confirming what we all feared, you know. Now, this reaction felt right to me. Even in spite of how chummy he and Kitty have gotten of late, I, I feel like Bishop would uh, would treat this, you know, professionally, you know? And also, on that note, it's worth noting that Bishop, he acts like a police officer here. He collects a sample of Kitty's bindings. I thought that was a very nice touch. And I'm guessing that's probably going to lead to, um, you know, some finger pointing. I don't know that it'll go directly to shore right away, but at least, you know, they're going to know it was Krakoan. In, uh, in origin, so there's going to be some uh, some trouble brewing and probably a lot of suspicious minds. Uh, Iceman, he reacts violently and uh, kind of wants to get his pound of flesh out of the goons. I'd say the anger feels about right. Uh, Bobby and Kitty have been pretty close for a while now and uh, were even for a time romantically linked. So I could see Bobby losing his cool here. You know, no pun intended. The brutality, though... Maybe a bit much. Um, I mean, this scene with him snapping off appendages, it reminds me of those early kitty scenes from this volume, where, like, she would have no problem or no qualms, like, phasing solid objects through through her, her foe's legs or whatever, or, like, putting two of them together like they were on a spit. Really brutal. Maybe even a bit too brutal, um, if I'm being honest. 
Now, Storm's reaction was more or less exactly what I expected. Uh, you know, something awful happened to someone very dear to her, and like many of us do, she needed something, somewhere, or someone to focus her frustration and anger on, right? I mean, a lot of us have had bad things happen, bad things that are blameless, you know, just, you know, I, I mean, pardon the crudeness, but, you know, the whole shit happens sort of thing. I, I think a lot of us have had those blameless bad things happen, and uh, it makes the situation worse, doesn't it? I mean, at least if someone caused a bad situation, you could at least blow off some steam in their direction, right? It's it's cathartic, it's... I don't know. I think it's just part of the part of the grieving and healing process. Here, I mean, Storm's angry. We can see that. It's justified. It makes a lot of sense. She knows Emma, despite giving Kitty this job, didn't actually kill her. But Emma's there, right in front of her, and she can take the hit. And she does, literally. You know, Storm does strike her. So Emma does let Storm blow off her steam before... You know, before they talk about the the likelihood that, you know, Kitty's going to be back soon. You know? Um, yeah, the embrace there was really good. I liked I liked Emma kind of just letting Storm in. And letting her know that uh, she had the same concerns when, when Cyclops and the Orcus team died, you know? I think this was really, really cool stuff. Um, and I like this. And it's funny... Because, I mean, just a few episodes ago, we talked about Giant Size X-Men, Jean Grey, plus Emma Frost, right? And I wonder why this wasn't the scene that manifested when that big cat in Storm's psyche asked Emma if she was a friend of Storm's. I mean, then again, who knows the order in which these stories are coming, right? For all we know, the five Giant Size issues were supposed to be read in one big gulp. Or maybe... Hell... (laughs) Maybe they happened on Earth, too, for all I know. We, we, we will try not to worry about that here. So, yeah. I really dug the reactions to Kitty's passing. Um, I mean, keeping up with things I enjoyed. I, I As much as I think Fenris sucks, I dug seeing them here. Um, I am a lore guy, and I'll take all the lore I can get. And the Fenris twins were part of the upstart, so I guess I'm stuck taking them. Um, it makes me wonder, like, who who's next? Are we gonna are we gonna pull Sienna Blaze out of the mothballs here? <laughs> I probably shouldn't put that into the universe, though. Um, on the other side of it here, let's talk about something I'm getting a little tired of here. Um, to me, my marauders notwithstanding, because that was just ugh. I'm really getting bored with the X Men fighting nameless, faceless mercenary goons, and I understand the landscape. I understand. What's going on? I mean, we're kind of painted into a corner, right? We made all the best bad guys into X-Men allies. But this is getting so played out. Um, how many more months can we see the various X-Teams fighting and just wrecking dudes? You know, just dudes. We see Zeno, we see Merc, Orcus, the Cartel, Verendi. It's a bit much, right? <laughs> it's. I'm very, very tired of it. Uh, I mean, when we see, like, the... The, the Junior Hellfire Club, the the actual ominous Verendi uh, team, that was refreshing because it was people we actually know, and it's not just it's not just people in flak outfits, and because that's all we're getting, <laughs> it's making it so having Deathbird in the Shi'ar is is almost refreshing, which I, is something I never thought I'd say, but I'd like to move on to a point where we're not just fighting goons. 
I don't know if that'll, that time will come before uh, te- X of Tens. I don't know if... I haven't looked at X of Tens yet. So for all I know, that's still going on there. But uh, yeah, getting tired of it. Looking forward to... I don't know. I, I don't even know what I'm looking forward to because... Like I said, all the best bad guys are on Krakoa. So it's like we have to wait for a a defection almost. Um, which, hey, may or may not happen. Who knows? Overall, though, I really dug this issue. It was a necessary next step sort of issue, and it did what it did very well. Um, the art here from Caselli was very, very good. Really, um, my only complaints are the same complaints I've had about a lot of the X-Books, and that uh, the... If we gotta do punchy-punchy time, can we actually get some villains and not just dudes in armor and dudes in suits? Just uh, give me something different. But uh, other than that, really, really great issue. Um, Before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here to talk about another really, really good issue. And this is a letter from Al, and he's talking about New Mutants number one. He says, So now we have the return of New Mutants. I agree this was a good one. I do wonder why Mondo and Chamber are here, though. I mean, I get why they were there for the Krakoa scenes, but why did they go into space to get Cannonball? I don't recall them having any particular connection to him or the others. And yeah, that's uh, your point is well taken here. I, I just assumed they were going for, like, an amalgamated Young Mutants team with this, you know? Uh, since they weren't launching a Generation X or a new X-Men or, God forbid, a young X-Men, I figured... They just stick all the next gens in this book, but like I said, uh, your point is well taken here. Why why would they take Chamber and Mondo up to uh, Shi'ar space while leaving like Boom Boom behind? That doesn't seem right. I mean, is uh, is Magma is she is she around? <laughs> I, I think she's on the cover of an issue coming up, so she's there. Why why didn't they take her? Uh, is Gossamer around? Bird Brain? Are they? <laughs> God, oh, oh, I could only imagine. Uh, Al continues, but still, it's nice to see the two of them again, particularly Mondo. I'm curious to see what they do with him, since I think he was used more in the Age of Apocalypse mini than in the regular Gen X book. And yeah, you know, Mondo's a weird choice. Though with his power set and this, you know, brave new Krakoa, I suppose he, you know, he makes a bit more sense. And yeah, he really didn't get a whole lot of play back in the original Generation X series. I, I, I can't even think of a single thing he did besides turn on the team. You know, he, he joined up with Black Tom. It, it's it's also kind of weird that we haven't gotten a uh, Black Tom and uh, Mondo scene, considering they're both there. Huh, maybe, maybe that's coming. Who knows? Uh, Al continues, I'm also liking the Sienkiewicz effects on magic. I hope they keep that up. And yeah, I mean, the Sienkiewiczian touches were pretty much perfect here, and... The art here from Rod Reese, I, I've said it every time we've seen it, it's its ridiculous. I can't even... It, oof, it's great. It's some really, really awesome stuff. Uh, Al continues, This was a different side of Corsair than we're used to seeing. More hard-edged. How often have we seen him or the Starjammers when either one of his kids isn't around or Xavier isn't on the team? Could that be why? And I agree. Um, you know, the, the entire Starjammers team felt pretty weird here. Um... Especially considering we'd seen them at Summer House in X-Men number one, and they seemed like, uh, I don't know, they seemed like their usual-ish selves. They were just cool. They were nice. They weren't, uh, they didn't have, like, a bug up their ass like they did in in New Mutants. I don't know if maybe they were trying to drive home the point that the New Mutants were maybe just getting on their nerves. 
which worked, though maybe it was a little bit ham-fisted. Maybe it was just a matter of the Star Jammers being, like, on the job, you know? Like, they were out to steal whatever it was that they stole, and the kids were just kind of in the way. I don't know, I don't know if we were just supposed to... We were supposed to think that they were just grading on one another, or that this space travel was taking a very long time, and they were just in such close quarters together. But yeah, this was a different different side to them. They're, they weren't the uh, swash, swashbuckling, easy for me to say, swashbuck, that, 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 swashbuckling space pirates. There we go. They weren't that, <laughs> despite actually being space pirates here. They just seemed a little bit, uh, how did you put it here, harder-edged, and I, I think that's a very good way to put it. Uh, Al continues, whatever the reason, I knew he was lying, and I'm looking forward to meeting Sunspot's space lawyer. And yes, the wicked space lawyer. Uh, what a letdown that's going to be. <laughs> it was a cute scene, but I was expecting to get a bit more out of that. But it really, it really doesn't go anywhere. I think it was more a sight gag than anything else. Um, Al closes up by saying, "Next up, X Force number one," and I am definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that issue because uh, that one's got a pretty big cliffhanger. So uh, I, I'm wondering. I'm wondering how you'll receive it, and I, I really can't wait to hear your thoughts on that. But uh, thank you so much, and um, if anybody else would like to write in, you could do so very, very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter and at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. If you're interested in seeing some of the stuff I've written or a whole bunch of podcasting stuff, you could head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. If you're just interested in X-Lapsed, hey, we can still be friends. I got a site for that, too. That's xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. If you'd like to talk about the X-Men with me and a bunch of uh, other like-minded individuals on Facebook, you can do so at 90s X-Men. And if you want to listen to a whole bunch of other stuff, you could go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com for the full Chris and Reggie channel archives there. Thousands of hours for your listening pleasure. So I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. One more big thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 64 of x Labs, where we are very nearly into the double digits of one of our Dawn of X books. How quickly time flies when, uh, when I guess you're not paying attention. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing Marauders number 9, which had a May 2020 cover date. The story is called Journey to the Center of Pyro, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali. Colors, Edgar Delgado. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale March 4th of 2020. And uh, we, got, we got a bunch to talk about today, so uh, it's going to be... Not quite as heavy as some of the last uh, few episodes, but uh, uh, just the same. We have a lot to talk about, so we'll hop right on in. And we open with the Marauder returning to Krakoa, where, whew, they're given a hero's welcome. Well, Pyro is anyway. Uh, it's like he's one of the Beatles here. Uh, the people absolutely adore him. You know, he passes the crowd of people that are just mobbing him, and he heads to his hot rod. Uh, I guess they got cars on Krakoa now. And atop it lays a very seductively posed Jean Grey. Now they immediately lock lips before doing the whole Danny and Sandy, you're the one that I want bit, driving off into the sunset. Well, actually they're listening to Freebird on the radio, but I like my version a little bit, a lot better actually. From here, a single page of credits. I knew they could do it. Uh, Then a roll call. Pyro, Bishop, Emma Frost, Magneto, Professor X, and the Stepford Cuckoos. No Jean Grey, though. Huh, that's weird. So, uh, yeah, that opening scene didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense, did it? I tell you what, there's a reason for that. And it's this. Now, Emma Frost has deduced that Pyro has a stowaway lurking deep inside, and uh, she's put these images into our fiery friend as a way to, you know, keep our passenger in the dark. Now, Bishop joins Emma somewhere, and it's like she's watching a stage performance of the scene that we just read, only with Pyro and Jean dressed mannequins instead of the, you know, real deals. She fills Bishop in on some of what she knows and says, hey, meet me at the Cove, I got more to tell you. Now, at the Cove, we see Pyro stood all catatonic-like, actually mentally, like, living out that scene that we just saw, that weird scene there. Now, Emma tells Bishop that there's a teeny tiny man named Yellow Jacket lurking inside Pyro. Now, inside Pyro, we see what Yellow Jacket is seeing, which is to say, we see a whole lot of lovey-dovey Jean Grey stuff. Suddenly, Pyro himself begins to stir. He's heard everything Emma said, and he's none too keen about having a little man in a submarine floating through his bloodstream. And so he begins to panic, which cuts off the psychic vision, which is to say, all the Jean Grey stuff goes away. Yellow Jacket then realizes that it's all been a setup, and he pounds on the sub's enlarge button, resulting in the sub immediately returning to full size, rendering poor Pyro into not much more than a puddle of gore. Eh, well, I guess maybe if they resurrect him again, he might not have that horrible face tattoo, so it's not all bad, right? Huh, now, a blood and body muck covered Emma attempts to force Yellow Jacket to reveal himself, you know, exit the sub and whatnot. To which he does. He does exit the sub, but only long enough to give his cannons some voice commands. And Emma Frost is shot squarely in the face by a blast. Old YJ freaks out a bit and decides to beat a hasty retreat, sending the sub deep into the depths, hoping that he'll be able to make it all the way back to Madripoor. Bishop attempts to give chase, but it's futile to follow the teeny tiny submarine. 
from here an info page from the X desk, and it's two full pages, two full pages of intel here, which eh, maybe a little bit too wordy. I don't think they needed both pages to make these points, but what are you gonna do? Uh, some important stuff here includes the idea that Omanes Verendae might poison some Krakoan magic meds in order to undermine the world's confidence in the mutants. Stands to reason. We also get a mention of our CIA agent friend from Wolverine, Mr. Jeff Bannister, along with his suggestion that the magic meds are being turned into some sort of narcotic, likely the pollen that we're reading about over in that book. Also, there are mutants enjoying life in Rio Verde, Arizona. Tell you what, now that we're finally out of the 90-plus degree weather Fahrenheit, at least for the moment, I know I'm enjoying life a lot more here as well. Of course, next week, if, if, uh, if the forecasts are right, we're going to be back up into the 90s, so we'll see. Finally, we learn that there's a big party about to go down because the domain hellfiregala.com has been squatted. And I tried visiting that site so you won't have to, and sadly, it ain't a real page. Uh, I'd have bet money before that it would have just redirected the Marvel's Dawn of X page, but not this time. Suddenly, back to comics and we're back on the beach and... everything's okay. Yep, you see, that psychic vision didn't actually end. And yeah, they got me with this one. Now, Emma, Bishop, and Pyro are joined on the beach by Magneto and the Cuckoos. Now, the Cuckoos are helping Emma amp up her psychic projection, and so we find out that Yellowjacket is still actually inside Pyro's body, even though he thinks he fled Krakoa an hour ago. This is very well done, and like I said, it totally got me. I'm not sure what it says about how easy it is for us to just accept that mutants are sort of kind of disposable, but maybe we'll discuss that a little bit later on. Suffice it to say, when I thought both Pyro and Emma were killed during that scene, I didn't even bat an eye. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Perhaps we'll talk about it a little later on. So, back to the story here. Magneto noinks the teeny tiny sub out of Pyro like so much adamantium out of Wolverine. Magneto comments that they're lucky that Pyro has only returned to Krakoa the one time since all the craziness out of Madripoor Bay. He's certain that Yellowjacket knows more than he ought to and suggests that Pyro be debriefed by X-Force regarding this breach. Pyro just wants to kill Yellowjacket and be done with it. He's like, screw it, let's kill him. Unfortunately, Kill No Man sadly extends to teeny tiny bug men. Uh, apropos of nothing, I really wish they'd clarify whether or not it's Kill No Man or Kill No Human, because it seems to be interchangeable depending on the situation. And of course, that only applies to the mutants that bother to follow the rule in the first place, but I digress. Anywho, Emma and the Cuckoos mind-wipe old YJ, and uh, Magneto hurls him back into the drink so he can head back to Madripoor with, you know, zero new information. Emma informs Bishop that their business in Madripoor is still not concluded. Bishop says, hey, I got some information I want to share with you. Emma tells him to settle down for a bit because uh, she'd like Call Me Kate to be present for this conversation. She then takes Pyro by the hand and engages in a bit of psychic projection, which takes us right into our next scene with the Hellfire Tots, Ominous Verande. They're celebrating their good fortunes and toasting their recent successes. Their party is interrupted by the arrival of a projection of Emma Frost and Pyro. She tells the Tots and their white bishop that their yellow jacket endeavor was a bust. Pyro then makes a little speech about how humiliated he is that they used him before burning all their faces off. 
well, for a panel anyway. Remember, this is all psychic vision-y stuff, so it was just a, you know, the thought that counts, I guess. Uh, Emma gives final warning to the kids, don't F with Krakoa. Now later, we follow Emma to Arbor Magna, which I suppose is where the hatchery is. She's, uh, she shows up there, she's informed by Professor X and the Five that the husk they were using wasn't viable. Which is to say, they are trying to bring Kitty back, and there are complications with that. Emma's pretty bummed out and confused, so is Charles, but the Five will keep trying. Now we wrap up back in Madripoor with our old pal Lockheed. He's sleeping in bed with the girl who fished him out of the bay and nursed him back to health. He suddenly gets a wild head to head home, but before he does so, he leaves the girl a gift in the form of a uh, half-eaten fishtail. Again, thought that counts. Uh, we finish the issue with an info page uh, of Beast's pyro incident debriefing. In it, Hank McCoy deduces that they need more security. No duh. And also that he won't be going to the Hellfire Gala, whatever that is. That's issue uh, eight, nine, nine of uh, Marauders. Next episode, welcome to X-Lapsed Cable. I hope we survive the experience. And uh, I also hope, beyond hope, that this isn't just a continuation of Fallen Angels. Please, please, please don't be that. But that's, again, a discussion for another time. Let's get into this issue here. What did we learn? What did we like? What did we not like? To start, another very enjoyable issue of Marauders. This is a book that just won't quit, right? Uh, first things first, big props to Duggan for the fake-out scene. We're going to talk in a bit about all the reasons why that scene shouldn't work. But in a vacuum, and for this issue to play out the way it did, I thought it was great. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. But is that a good thing overall? I, I only say that because we are in this... Uh, of course, this is Dawn of X, right? We have protocols, we have a whole new landscape, and we have this feeling that death doesn't matter. This isn't a Marauders problem, this is a Dawn of X problem. And in fairness, problem might be too strong a word for it, right? Um, now, death has been rendered so meaningless that, I mean, we can get full-on scenes of mutant gore and slaughter and just accept it. There's no investment. You know what I'm saying? Does, is this making sense? I mean, I can only speak for myself. But after the curtain was pulled back here and we saw that Emma and Pyro were still alive, the only feeling of relief I had was that we wouldn't have to sit through another resurrection scene and ceremony. I wasn't worried about them actually dying. And that's a problem, isn't it? And again, problem might not be the right word for it. We've talked a lot about the Resurrection Protocols, right? As we should, you know? Uh, the entire framework of Dawn of X sort of hinges on the idea, on the concept. We've also talked a lot about stakes, and how early on I decided that I was going to do my best to, for a lack of a better term, shift the stakes. Which is to say, not focus on things like life and death, because those are not the point anymore. The stakes reside in everything else. The interpersonals, the setting, the environment, the things that I would usually refer to as the scenery. You know, the stuff that I usually get way, way too focused on. And I feel, for the most part, I, like I've been kind of good at that. Sure, I'll slip every now and again, but again, for the most part, I feel like I've been able to maintain that point of view. Sure, I'll call them out on, on weird death cliffhangers, but I'm doing my best to shift those stakes to the everything else. 
But here, I don't know, it's, it's almost like the book is becoming self-aware. And yes, I realize how absolutely ridiculous that sounds, but please just bear with me for a moment. I mean, of course, there are a legion of creators involved, and the book in and of itself is inanimate, but it's almost like our new expectations are being toyed with, exploited. Before Dawn of X, had we witnessed a scene like this, and indeed, there were scenes like this before Dawn of X, we would have perhaps taken pause to let it sink in, right? Consciously or not, I feel like the gravity of the situation would have been something we pondered, even passively. Because this is comics, stakes are always a little bit wibbly-wobbly and nebulous in comics. But even passively, we would have just, it would have stuck with us. Now, though, was, was anybody worried? Anybody listening, were you worried about this scene? Did you think for a moment that it mattered whether or not Pyro and Emma Frost were dead? You know, the book knows we don't view mutant death as being all that big a deal. It's a temporary setback. And so we get a scene like this, and it carries very little in the way of drama and import. Now, our perceptions have changed, and they used that fact in order to craft this scene. Now, I'm saying this in order to give Duggan and company actual props here. They used the parameters of the Dawn of X rulebook. You know, they played the ball where it lied. And the way we all look at things like mutant death to make it seem as though what was happening on panel was actually what was happening on panel. I didn't doubt for a second that both Pyro and Emma Frost were dead here, which is why it worked so well. But it's also why it's kind of a problem. And again, I'm using the term problem very nebulously here. It's just a a catch-all for me. Uh, Now, you see, despite my misgivings about the value of life in the Dawn of X books, Without the idea that mutants are, for lack of a better term, a renewable resource, a scene like this would not have had the same effect. Prior to Dawn of X, I feel like if we saw this scene, our spidey senses would immediately start to tangle and we'd be waiting for the other shoe to drop. Here, though? Maybe not so much, right? I'm still not 100% sure where I land on this, insofar whether or not I like it, but I can appreciate it. And that's, you know, agree, disagree. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Absolutely. Um, next, me being a pedantic prick, kill no man versus kill no human. This is another thing that isn't a Marauder's problem, but a Dawn of X problem. And again, maybe problem is too strong a term. Uh, and, and also, this might just be something that bothers me because I'm a pedantic prick. Now, when the Quiet Council made the rules back in House of X number six, I think, um, now the law was stated as both ways. Jean 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 Grey suggested kill no humans, right? However, when we finally got our info page regarding the three main laws of Krakoa, it simply said kill no man. And I totally get and appreciate that this is a silly thing to get stuck on. It's certainly not a hill I want to die on, But in the framework of the fantastical Marvel Universe, those two lines can have very different meanings, can they not? If kill no humans is what we're sticking with, then we get scenes like the one in New Mutants where Ilyana killed those aliens because they weren't human. Is that somehow right in Krakoa law? Does that mean it's open season on the Inhumans? Because I tell you what, I don't want to see any of those characters ever again in an X-Book. What about Atlanteans? 
Can we kill Atlanteans? How about miracles? Are Quicksilver and the Silver Witch still referred to as miracles so they could jam them into the movies? Or have they picked a lane on that yet? What about other mutants? Are they okay to kill? Kill no humans in the scope of the Marvel Universe, when we stop to think about it, it's kind of a narrow range, isn't it? And sure, I'm thinking about this way too hard, and it all comes down to the fact that I am way too pedantic, but I think I want some clarification on this. Will this ever be a sticking point for the characters? Like, will we have a scene where Magic's getting ready to kill a bunch of aliens and, uh, and say, Sunspot is there saying, whoa, 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 don't, you can't kill them. It's like, well, they're not human. Well, I, that's not the rule. Will there be a sticking point? Will this be a bone of contention between characters? Probably not. But I'm sure this won't be the last time I kvetch about it. And I apologize for that ahead of time. Uh, back to the issue itself. Uh, because, as we said, I think a couple episodes ago... When you have a book that's this good, it's hard to really add anything to it outside of nitpicking, like I've been doing, <laughs> with uh, with regards to things that aren't Marauder-centric. Um, let's get Marauder-centric here, and I will say that Kitty's Resurrection Challenge is interesting, and I really can't wait to see how it plays out. I mean, I'm not going to play dumb here. You all know that I'm buying these books long before I get around to reading them for the show, but... I'm not blind. I've seen recent covers, so I know Kitty will eventually be back with some very, very, very curly hair. I am, however, very interested in learning a bit more about these challenges with her resurrection process. Maybe this will tell us a bit more about why Kitty can't use the portals. You know, why she appears to have been, for lack of a better term, forsaken by Krakoa. It's very interesting, and I'm looking forward to seeing that play out. Uh, overall, I was very, very pleased with this issue. Uh, like I said before, this this book refuses to quit, and it's uh, I, I can honestly say it's the most consistently strong book in the Dawn of X line. And as weird as it is to say, if you could only buy one Dawn of X book, if that's your budget or, or your your mental your, the, 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 your brain space would only allow you to have one book in this family in your home. Marauders really ought to be that book because it is the most consistent and the most uh, the most goodest. It's a very good book. <laughs> I definitely recommend it. So that, my friends, is Marauders number nine, the last single-ish, single-digit issue of Marauders. How about that? But before we go, let's dig into the mailbag here because we got uh, we got plenty to talk about. We're going to start with Damien discussing New Mutants number seven. He says, this was such a fun comic, but it's tinged by sadness knowing that it's Jonathan Hickman's last issue of New Mutants. I love the playfulness in the storyline. I also like the way the text pages and recaps are used to add more story. And I tell you what, I didn't realize that this was it for Hickman until this message. Uh, I just assumed... I mean, we've seen him and Brisson uh, hand off the baton every couple issues. I just thought they were going to keep doing that. I know Brisson was on the issue after this, but... Yeah, I thought it was just going to be back and forth. That's really too bad. Um, now, as for the text pages and recaps, they were used to great effect here. Um, for folks who might not have listened to that episode, whole big swaths of story happen in a recap, and and they 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 you know they lampshade it by having Roberto spoil an issue that never came out. It's it's funny. It's very cute. Uh, but as I mentioned during the discussion of New Mutants number seven. All that stuff that Roberto spoiled us on, I don't think that was something I wanted to spend an entire episode talking about. So this was a very clever way to give us more story. No fluff, just 
Just stuff. Really good. Really good. Uh, Damien continues, I also have to take a moment to praise Rod Reese again. The whole book looks amazing. There are so few artists who can draw a conversation with the same dynamicism as fight scenes, but Reese is one. Outstanding. 100% agreed. Uh, Reese is uh, phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I, I just found out Hickman's leaving. I hope, I hope Reese isn't leaving, too. I hope he sticks around even without. You know, even though Hickman's gone, I, I'd like to keep Reese, for sure. He's fantastic. He's the perfect contemporary artist for New Mutants. He's got... He's oh, he's just great. He's great. He's got basically he's an amalgamation of all the artists you'd ever want to see on New Mutants, and uh, and is able to pull off some amazing stuff here, just as Damien said here. But uh, thank you so much for the uh, letter, Damien. I, I always I always look forward to them. So thank you. Uh, next we have uh, we have some mail from Jason Colby here. This is regarding several recent issues, and he says, "Dear Chris." You've frequently spoken about how you have a compulsion to keep on buying these books. I don't have that collector's compulsion, but I do have a deep, irrational compulsion to reread, or sometimes just read, each Dawn of X book before I listen to you discuss it. Which is, uh, by the way, of explaining what that I've fallen behind, and why I've been scarce for a while. But I'm back, baby, and I have a handful of thoughts about the most recent dozen or so Dawn of X issues. After I send this, I'll start listening to your podcasts on the aforementioned and find out just how redundant my thoughts are. It'll be like a game. <laughs> but th- thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for keeping up, for coming back. Um, I-, I always enjoy see- reading your, uh, your thoughts here, and uh, I'm looking forward to going through it here on the air as well. But uh, I know I'm putting out probably way too much content, so <laughs> it's difficult to... Uh, it's difficult to keep up all the way, especially when uh, when there are reading assignments that come along with it a lot of the times. But thank you. Uh, now into Jason's message here. He's talking about first X-Men Fantastic Four. He says, Chip Zosky is a writer I used to, to really not like. I had him pigeonholed as the guy who does funny, edgy books like Sex Criminals that are just not my bag. Then he wound up on Marvel 2-in-1 and I found myself having to change my tune. Two-in-One was an under-discussed book starring Ben Grimm and Johnny Storm that was around in the lead-up to the latest revival of the full-on Fantastic Four. This book had drama and heart and a feel for the characters above and beyond the usual. I was hoping that Zarsky would get the main gig when Reed, Sue, and the kids returned from being lost in the multiverse, but alas, that was not to be. I still remember Two-in-One fondly, though in part for doing more to teach me about what Victor Von Doom is all about than anything since the work of Stan and Jack themselves. There's not a lot of direct overlap between Two-in-One and X-Men Fantastic Four, but it was nice to see mention of Dr. Rachna Cool, or Cole, a superheroologist who featured in that earlier book and was a pretty cool character herself. And it's funny, um, before reading this, uh, I wasn't sure who uh, Zarsky was. Then I realized that that this, you know, X-Men plus Fantastic Four, was not the first thing of his I'd read. Um, the first thing I'd read from Chip Zosky was a few issues, a few early issues of the Jughead series, out of the you know the Archie nine hundred two one zero reboot for a handful of years back, which uh, really wasn't for me, uh, not not my bag, and uh, not something I stuck around with for a very long time. I found that Jughead series to be almost tragically unfunny <laughs> and all around not interesting. Uh, I'm glad that I'd forgotten that it was Zarsky that wrote it, 
because had I not, I probably would have come into uh, X-Men plus Fantastic Four with some some pretty bad uh, baggage, you know, some preconceptions about what we might be uh, about to get. But yeah, I, and I've heard about things like sex criminals. Um, I, didn't that come out like, like around the same time as that other book just called Sex came out? Yeah, a little edgy, a little try-hard, definitely not... Not for me. Um, I do remember a bit of a to-do over two-in-one uh, early in the Marvel Legacy days, but uh, unfortunately I was just so, so checked out on Marvel at that point. Um, I remember being very excited when Legacy was announced, you know, because, you know, we're going to go back to our roots. I thought this was going to be Marvel's sort of, you know, Me Too to DC Comics Rebirth, which Rebirth... At least, in theory, was a really good thing for DC um, They wound up treading water for a half decade But, uh, but I, you know, I digress um, Marvel Legacy was announced And I was thinking, okay, cool Maybe it's time for me to go home You know, maybe I can come home now Nope <laughs> I uh, actually got uh, the Marvel Legacy one-shot Sent to me by DCBS And I never even ordered it so I don't know if maybe they just ordered like an absolute crap ton of that book to get some incentivized variants or something and had to give them away. I know that hap- that does happen sometimes. That happens a lot with Marvel books. Uh, I, I, I wind up somehow getting a bunch of Marvel books I never ordered for free from DCBS uh, throughout the years, whether or not that's just them mistakenly throwing them in there or if it's a, an incentivized deal that they're just trying to push out the door. But anyway, all that to say, I got that Marvel Legacy one-shot, and whew, I I don't even know what it was. I tried reading it, and it was was mostly about Carol Carol Marvel, (laughs) Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, easy for me to say. Uh, And it was just, it did not feel, it didn't feel like a a return home. So I was able to make the decision very quickly that... Uh, I wasn't ready yet, so I didn't. But I do remember a lot of positive buzz around two and one uh, early on in those days here, and uh, maybe one of these days I'll I'll get around to it uh, because, like you, I, I would I would definitely dig a Zarsky uh, hell a Zarsky Dodson Fantastic Four run. Um, I've talked probably a little too much about my uh, not so much dislike for Dan Slott, but just the feeling that. I, I feel this weird anger in everything he writes, which is very off-putting. I feel like he hates, and, and hate is a strong word, yes, and I'm projecting 100%, but I feel like he has a real problem with most of his audience and is not shy about making them realize that uh, how little he thinks of them. And again, I'm projecting here. I have absolutely no knowledge. I've never met the man. He could be a total sweetheart for all I know. All I know is that I feel an underlying anger. When I read something from a Dan Slott or, or a Mark Wade uh, these days. Uh, back to Jason's letter. He says, This book, it was fine. I was hoping for a bigger impact, maybe resulting in placing the Krakoa mutants more firmly in the larger Marvel universe. I'm happy that didn't happen. <laughs> I'm happy that didn't happen. And uh, I can tell you why with one word Shield. For a decade, for the better part of a decade, not an entire decade, the better part of a decade, the X-Men were basically guest stars in their own book. 
a lot of the characters in the Marvel Universe were guest stars in their own book because it became S.H.I.E.L.D. and Iron Man. Or S.H.I.E.L.D. And, and these are not, you know, they didn't change the titles. This is just me being me. It was like S.H.I.E.L.D. guest starring the Hulk. S.H.I.E.L.D. guest starring the Avengers. Maria Hill guest starring the X-Men. I like the X-Men being segregated. I like them being in their own little fiefdom. I like them handling their own business. I came into this during the 90s. You know, I came into into Marvel, into the X-Men in the, you know, the early 90s where there was very little crossover and when we, when they did crossover it meant something. So you'd get a story as boring as it was like X-Men Avengers Bloodlines or Blood Ties or whatever the hell it was. A very boring story. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it on my shelf now. It's Blood Ties. Uh, boring story. Not a great story at all. It was actually very bad. But it felt special because you didn't see Captain America and Cyclops on panel together very often. You know? I, I want to go back to that sort of... Uh, I, and I realize putting that genie back in the bottle is difficult. Especially with the movies and the media and the cartoons and the toys. But I like it when, you know, you'd go 20 issues of Spider-Man, and then you'd get one that's like guest-starring the Avengers, and it's like, ooh, now it's like, they have to put, it's like almost they have to put on the cover for me, this one does not feature the Avengers, so I buy it. It's, I, I like keeping the mutants sec- separate is all I'm trying to say here. I'm taking the very scenic route here, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> leave my mutants alone. Uh, Jason continues, that didn't happen, but it was still pretty fun along the way. The heroes have a punch-up before they eventually team up trope is a classic, but seemed not entirely natural here. I did appreciate that all sides involved, the mutants, the Fantastic Four, Doomsie himself, have clear, understandable motivations that are true to their characters. Franklin and Val are themselves full-fledged, rounded characters, which is new to me as a modern Marvel reader. And the Doom Sentinels at K. Latviathans are just plain looked cool. Has this ever been done before? It seems like the kind of thing that must have been done before. Everything else in the Marvel U has been mashed up with everything else in the Marvel U, but maybe Sentinel plus Doctor Doom has been overlooked until now. Anyway, it was ultimately an okay story, but largely forgettable. And fine and okay is probably... It's probably how I would put it, too. Um, Which is unfortunately a bit of a letdown for me personally, because I... With absolutely no prompting or absolutely no forward knowledge here, I stuffed so many eggs into this basket when it was announced. I expected so much. Uh, going back to my earliest days in the fandom, I, I well, as soon as I found out Franklin Richards was a mutant, I'm like, ooh, ooh, there's something there, you know. And this is 30 years ago. Then we get it, and it's fine. <laughs> it's just there, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it'll be referenced again. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, I'd like to see it referenced. Who knows? As far as the uh, Doom Sentinels are concerned, I don't know if those have been done before. They they certainly looked cool. And um, I'm thinking off the top of my head, the X-Men and, and Doom, they don't really cross paths all that often. That's a rarity these days. But uh, yeah, they don't really cross paths. So maybe this is new. And, uh, and if so, I, I definitely liked it. Uh, Jason continues regarding Major X. So, this is what the 90s were like. Moving on. (laughs) I feel like there were a lot less Atlanteans back then, which made the stories a little less boring. But uh, Major X, Major X. Um, 
For those who only listen to X-Laps, there is a show here every Sunday. For the next few Sundays, anyway, that's called Major X-Laps, where I look at an issue of Major X. There are seven total episodes. I think at this point I have four up. The fifth will be going up this Sunday. And uh, I kind of gushed over the first issue because it felt like it felt like something of a homecoming to me. It felt very, very true to the 90s roots. As we move on, not so much. Um, it keeps, I think the way I put it was that it keeps like the vapidity, <laughs> the shallowness of a 90s comic, but somehow like has this weird marriage with current year decompressed storytelling. So you're getting the most shallow and empty story possible. And that decompression was not in the 90s. In the 90s, if anything, you got way too much to digest. It was very, uh, you know, to steal a term from different media altogether, it was very crash TV, you know, in, in some instances, especially when it was a Liefeld involved. So many things, so many concepts, just so much, um, so much stimuli thrown at you. Whereas with Major X, it started that way. The first issue was very much in that uh, in that sort of gestalt of the early 90s. But then after that, oof, it's like they realized, hey, we can't do this in two issues. You need to fill six. And it's like, ah, crap. So uh, we keep going, and uh, we'll hope for the best. I, I haven't read it. This is... Uh, I've only read the issues that we've covered on the show. So I still uh, have to read issues five, six, and zero. So... And I have read part of Zero because it's a reprint, mostly. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, and hopefully, uh, Jason, you'll stick around and uh, and suffer with me. Or, or maybe we'll both be surprised. You never know. Uh, Jason continues regarding X-Force. He says, Regarding the Xavier's Confession document-slash-data page in X-Force number 6, this one has me flummoxed. What is this document supposed to be? Who was supposed to have written this? And Why? You know that whenever I see one of these data pages, I ask myself, would this really exist as an object in the Dawn of X universe? Unless this is a mystery that winds up being solved later, the confession page looks like it fails that test. And I agree. I agree. This is one of those info pages where I feel like they did this rather than actually writing a scene into the story. That's not always a bad thing, right? Um, That's evidenced in several info pages we've seen that have given us great information including the aforementioned New Mutants number 7, which ate up copious amounts of redundant storytelling with info pages and recaps. Did it very well. But this one, yeah, fails the test. Um, in, in that it, you know, as a thing that exists in the Dawn of X universe, it wouldn't be terribly interesting, and just as something that's interesting to begin with, it ain't. Uh, to me, this was just page filler. And maybe a way to add a bit of flavor, which ultimately doesn't do all that much. Not uh, not one of my favorites. Uh, keeping up with uh, X-Force info pages, Jason continues. In X-Force number 7, Beast finds a burned bit of paper with a word or name on it in Russian. The 1% of high school Russian that I remember is enough to tell me that the word is pronounced Yetopisyets. And Google Translate tells me this means chronicler. Does this connect somehow with the confession page in the previous issue? Beats me, but it must mean something. And yeah, that info page baffled me from the get-go. I honestly haven't the foggiest idea what it is, or what it might turn out to be, if anything at all. Um, 
one thing if I had if I had some extra time I would go through a lot of these info pages again and just see how many of them actually turned into something because uh, some of it might just I'm thinking about the ones in Excalibur which are like and, and of course Fallen Angels which were like poetry I wonder how many of these actually meant something in the greater scheme of things or were just there to fill a page it'd be interesting to find out uh, Jason continues Looking at the arc of this title overall, again, this is X-Force, I'm enjoying the power corrupts theme that's going on with Beast. But could it have been a little bit more done with a little bit more subtlety? Maybe showed him struggling a bit with ethical pitfalls and manipulating the world and his own team for the greater good. Just showing the tiniest pang of conscience would go a long way here to make Beast less of a caricature. With Plant Man slipping back off into the jungle at the end of issue 6, it looks like Beast's choices are about to come back and bite him in his fuzzy blue behind. I'm looking forward to seeing that play out. And subtlety. Subtlety is not something we often get in X-Force, right? Um, Though, in fairness, over the course of the past couple of issues of X-Force, Percy's gotten a little bit better at that. In 6, though, you're 100% right. Uh, Beast is... He's the villain here. He's the bad guy. No moral quandaries. No struggling. Just do the thing because I said do the thing. Um, And I mentioned a couple of times before that I'm hoping that this leads to a sort of redemption arc for Hank. But I'm not confident in the slightest that should it happen that it would play out the way I would want it to happen. Because uh, we can't have nice things all the time, so... But your, your point is very well taken here. The, the, the fact that Beast is able just to do the thing without getting into his head at all, seeing him, seeing him maybe hesitate, it's just do the thing. And I, I don't like that. Uh, Jason continues, X-Men, issues 6 and 7 of X-Men are two of my favorites of the entire Dawn of X era. Both of them tie directly to the themes and actions of Hoxpox and elevate this title back to the extraordinary that I've been missing. And I'm happy you said that because that's one of the first things I thought about in reading these two issues. In an earlier letter, you mentioned something along the lines of how Hoxpox had prepared us for the extraordinary, which was something that Doc's didn't pay off. Um, now, issues six and seven were the first yet to give me that old Hoxpox feeling. Which was a great thing Um, Some bad came with it In the fact that And I've talked about my insecurities Before here but as I was discussing Hoxpox I didn't feel qualified To discuss Hoxpox I didn't feel smart enough And in issues 6 and 7 I had similar feelings I had similar hesitations And similar uh, Internal monologue that told me that It's like oh you're screwing this one up (laughs) But uh, it gave me that old feeling again. It gave me that fire in the belly, which was um, when you do this work a day, the way I've been doing it, you need those special issues. And, uh, you know, if I were to say, like, if we were still going the same way we were going at Hoxpox, if you remember, I think it was three issues in our Hoxpox checklist. Uh, I think it was House of X2, House of X5, and Powers of X6. When you looked at that that reading order, that timeline, the you know the 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 order in which we read these things, those three books were all highlighted in red, right? All the rest of them were white. Those three were in red, and I think I referred to those as like the shoe drop issues. You know, those were the shoe drop issues. But for a better way of putting it, those are the issues you don't want to miss. I think, and I know why they aren't doing this with the Dawn of X books, but. 
I think six and seven of X-Men should have been red. You know, they should have been those red issues because these are important. They're vital to the story. And uh, definitely, definitely good stuff. Extraordinary is a very good word for it. Uh, Jason continues, In issue six, we have the fun of knowing more than any individual character. Mystique knows that Charles is holding out on her regarding resurrecting Irene, but she doesn't know why. We know why. Can't have any precogs running around blabbing out Mara's secret. Charles knows that Mystique is on the edge of rebelling against him, but he doesn't know her secret. Before her death, Irene had already preemptively spilled some beans, vague oracular beans, telling Mystique to distrust Charles and bring her, Irene, back, or failing that, to burn Charles's dream to the ground. It's great stuff. Mystique has motive, means, and opportunity to do all sorts of bad stuff to Krakoa. As far as shoes waiting to drop, this one has to rate as a size 16 Doc Martin, and I am here for it. I couldn't have said that any better myself. That was uh, very well put. (laughs) 100%. Um, Yeah, issue 6 was great. Issue 6 was great, and just... uh, I know I'm probably saying food for thought a lot lately, but, I mean, that just begs for uh, for analysis, doesn't it, that issue? Um, one of the things I got stuck on was thinking, you know, all we see here is one conversation between Mystique and Destiny, right? We see the one where she says, there will be an island, you will be promised things, you'll be let in, but your promises won't be paid off. We don't know what other conversations they might have had that we aren't privy to. Right? I mean, Destiny might have told Mystique how this all ends. She might have been the one to, like, architect the end of it. And there's just so much interesting stuff in there. And it's all going to be true to the story. It's all going to make sense in in the scope of, of comic books, of course. But it's great. It's really, really great stuff here. And uh, a wonderful issue. Should have had a red highlight on it in the in the uh, in the little reading order list because this one you need to read. Speaking of issues you need to read, Jason continues. Issue seven finally has the characters in universe talking about the philosophical questions that have been bugging me since we were first introduced to the mutant resurrection. When a, when mutant death is temporary, why not take advantage? Why grow old? Why suffer through injury or illness or growing out a bad haircut? Why not just hit the resurrection reset button and start over again as your sexiest self? But will the new you really truly be you? Or just look, talk, and act like you? What fundamentally are you? I've been asking these questions, so it's nice to see Nightcrawler asking these questions as well. And he seems to be the perfect character to do it. He's thoughtful, philosophical, religious. It would be weird if questions like these didn't trouble his mind and... Yes, these are the big questions, right? These are the big questions of Dawn of X. And, you know, not to go off on a tangent or anything, but it's scary how if we look at this, we take a step back from Dawn of X here, both narratively and uh, creatively. So we're looking at it in the book and out of the book here. There are no rules, right? I mean, the rules, of course, this is fiction, and fiction is written, Uh, So rules are created along the way, but given that we have this sort of, not so much a blank slate, but we have, we have two empty slabs of commandments, right? There are no, there's nothing to tell us what's what. 
So this is a world, both in the book and out of the book, that has no rules. Like speaking purely of the resurrection protocols. No rules, really. That's not always a bad thing, is it? Though, at the same time, without anything to like reel us back in, I feel like things can go out of control quickly. And I've made comments to the fact that, you know, we're killing a lot of people here, and we're not really thinking about it, right? Um, in X-Force, it feels like every issue, somebody dies. Somebody gets beheaded, or someone gets their brains blown out. I think we've read, what, eight issues of X-Force, and we've had, we've had like, what, a half dozen deaths? We've had a lot of deaths in this book. So I feel like, you know, we need rules. Things need to be established here. And I feel like this Dawn of X landscape has a potential to meet a, like, a logistical tipping point. Like, where I talk a lot about tipping points, but it's like, if you stack too many willy-nilly things on one side, it's impossible, no matter what you put on the other side, to bring it back to an even, even keel. So now we have rules. We have a ceremony. We have, a, we have customs. We have Krakoan customs. The Crucible will be a custom. It's very well done. It's, I have absolutely no complaints about it. I have questions about it. I, I question a lot of things about it, but it's all very well done. And it works both narratively and on a meta level. Because we now have a rule. And it has to be abided by, not only by the characters, but by the creators. You know? So maybe we talk about life having value. I, I spent a lot of time talking about that today. Where, where life really doesn't have a value. Death is a temporary setback, more so than in other comic books. But hopefully, we're starting to get some semblance of rules here. Nightcrawler mentioned that fo- the foundation's already cracking. Maybe something like the Crucible is a little bit of spackle in the crack, right? Maybe it's just something that gives us footing. As for Nightcrawler's questions, I mean, you think we'll ever get the answers? Are, are they even answers that can be given with actual words? You know, can a Jonathan Hickman say, here are your answers? You know, it's not like we haven't seen Marvel's versions of Heaven and Hell before, right? Nightcrawler even lived in heaven for a bit. Uh, that to the lead up to uh, Amazing X-Men. There was an ongoing series called Amazing X-Men. Their first mission was going to heaven to, to bring home Nightcrawler. And if I'm remembering right, Nightcrawler's own father lived in hell. So, I, I, which, you know, that might, maybe that's just kind of more fuel for the fire, isn't it? You know, because Nightcrawler would definitely question all of this. He's the perfect point of view character for for something like this. I just wonder if he'll or we'll ever get any of these answers that we're looking for, because we know that. Uh, I mean, we talked we talked a little bit uh, a couple episodes about back about you know the soul. What is a soul? What's a soul in the real world? What's a soul in the Marvel universe? We know Nightcrawler's soul went to heaven. So we know that souls are a thing. In the real world, I'd like to believe they're souls, but I, there's no way I can prove or disprove it. So it's a, it would be interesting, and maybe it's purposely being kept nebulous. Maybe it's just there so we ask these questions, because we really should be asking these questions. 
Maybe it's something that the, they're not going to answer. But maybe whatever we decide is uh, is the way it is for us is good enough. If that makes any sense, I, I I'm kind of talking in circles. I apologize. <laughs> Jason continues. The way Hickman structures this issue is masterful. He doesn't come right out at the beginning and tell us what's going on. He shows us the characters acting realistically in their universe and allows the full horrible knowledge of what's about to take place to break over the reader gradually. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I tried being very conscious of this as I was putting together the synopsis here. I tried... For the first half of the synopsis, I tried to drive home the point that we didn't know what Crucible was. I think I dropped a few comments in there about, like, we still don't know what this is. All we know that it's a thing, and that it would be happening today. And there are people who are bothered by it, and they're questioning it. And and then when the fact, when it, when it you know, the, the shoe finally drops here, and we find out that, oh, <laughs> this is... This is uh, someone about to be cut in half by Apocalypse. This is someone about to be run through with a sword. It, it really has so much more impact. And we, we can actually go back and realize, oh, that's why Wolverine has this problem with it. That's why Cyclops is asking all these people about it. That's why Cyclops maybe was afraid to ask Jean how they came up with these rules. Or how they came up with this entire uh, concept of the event. Uh, masterful is a great way of putting it because it, it truly was. It truly was because I was chomping at the bit I was as I was reading it and I was getting angry because it, it was purposely kept nebulous and that's a good thing. So I'm reading it and it's like, would you just tell me what the hell this thing is? And it's like, well, how do you feel about it? I don't know how I feel about it. You need to tell me what it is first. And then it finally happens and it hits you like a ton of bricks. So well done. So well done. Uh, Jason continues, The crucible itself raises more questions. First of all, why? This could be something as simple and sanitized as a medical procedure or a Futurama suicide booth. But the mutants have made a ritual out of death. It is suicide, but it also isn't. The mutant in the crucible chooses death, but also goes out fighting. He is both final enemy and final friend. The logic is undeniable, yet slippery, like something out of a partially remembered dream. One question that the characters don't ask, but I will, what happens if the mutant fighting in the Crucible somehow wins? And I must say, before I start talking, referring to this as something out of a partially remembered dream is... Wow, it's perfect, isn't it? Because it's so, so crazy. But it almost makes sense, right? It, it makes sense, but at the same time it doesn't, which is like so much out of a dream. And uh, f- wonderful way of putting that, Jason. Thank you for that. Um, now, the Crucible in and of itself is weird. The entire concept of this ceremony was very, very strange. And, um, I mean, Nightcrawler tries to rationalize it as being something... It would have been something of a logistical nightmare for the Five if all the Deep Howards out there decided to just up and off themselves so they could be returned as whole. But yeah, this level of ceremony, it feels... I mean, it feels ceremonial, doesn't it? It's a big show. Spectators and everything. This is like, you know, a moratory te salutamus, you know? This is Caesar. 
Um, and I gotta assume and or hope that we'll get more of the rationale behind this as we move forward. Because as a as a performance, as an entertainment event, it's horrifying and it's uh, it's scary. And uh, you know, I don't like talking too much about things like morality, but is it a moral thing? Uh, to, to, to butcher somebody? E- even though you know they'll come back. I mean, the act of doing that... I mean, we have we have Apocalypse here. Our, our, final, our final enemy, our big boss, and our final friend. He's killing people. Over and over. We found out there's one million depowereds out there. So, and again, logistically speaking, it's, a, it's an impossibility, but... The potential is for Apocalypse to murder one million people. And it's just okay. It's weird, right? It's very weird. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, people are going to come and watch this. Public executions of their friends and family. Yeah, weird, huh? <laughs> Now, I do wonder what might happen should a combatant actually wind up besting a... That seems like an awfully difficult corner to be written into, doesn't it? But, uh, you know, it's almost almost a tough enough corner that it'll it'll almost definitely be written into. Uh, And I'm confident that Hickman and company could make it work, so there's that. But, uh, yeah, issue seven of X-Men. Oof. Oof, that was a biggie. I, I hope I hope folks, uh, if you guys have the time, would and you haven't heard the episode already, go, go back to issue episode uh, sixty-two. I think it was. It's a it's a heck of a story. Uh, Jason continues. New mutants. This title's growing on me. At the start of the Doc's era, I read the first few issues of New Mutants and just hated them. I didn't know how to respond to the jokey "none of this is to be taken seriously" tone, especially of the Hickman written space issues. But I've learned to love Bobby as an unreliable narrator and to take this book as more of a lark than anything to be taken seriously as mattering on the larger Dawn of X world. It does clearly take place in the same universe. For instance, we hear Cyclops talk about going to visit Shi'ar space at the beginning of X-Men number 7, and then lo and behold, we see him do just that at the end of New Mutants number 7. But it generally doesn't feel like the same universe. In X-Force, Marauders, and X-Men itself, things can get legitimately scary. Bad things can happen, but when our ship, when the ship our young new Mew friends are on gets blowed up by Death Commandos and they're floating in the inky blackness of space, we don't worry. We know nothing bad's going to happen, because this isn't the book where bad things happen. People get cranky, people throw tantrums, people make cringy passes at and get slugged by hot, hot, hot alien chicks, but nothing bad. Bad is for other books. This is just for fun. Well, first of all, I'm happy to hear that this one's growing on you. Um, the Hickman space issues have been a treat to me. Um, and maybe that's just my uh, familiarity with the characters. That could very well be the thing to, uh, to tip me over to uh, really enjoying it. Whereas if I were new to the, to the X-Men or to Marvel altogether, I, I don't think that would have had the same effect. Because... Uh, it is jokey. It's it's a little. Uh, I think I called it Deadpooly. It's a little Deadpooly. And um, if you're a new comic fan and you're reading Deadpool, you expect Deadpooly. 
But if you're reading something that's tied into something that's spun out of Hoxpox, Dead Bully might not cut it. So I totally understand that. It's too bad that, you know, we just found out Hickman's gone from that book moving forward. So, but at least we got a fairly entertaining, fairly interesting, you know, arc out of it, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very, it's very fun. Um, and I wonder, with Hickman leaving that book, whether or not it's going to tie more firmly into the, uh, the Dawn of X landscape moving forward. It very well might, or maybe it'll just keep doing its own thing. Just don't know. Um, I think I commented last time we discussed New Mutants, what was it, issue 8, I suppose it would be. Uh, The first uh, Brisson issue uh, on his own, I suppose. I said it felt like something out of X-Men Unlimited. Now, uh, Jason, you might not have read any X-Men Unlimited, but these were very throwaway stories from the uh, 90s into the turn of the century that uh, Marvel published quarterly. Uh, Just X-Men stories, usually by new talent, just cramming as many pointless uh, go-nowhere X-Men stories as possible and New Mutants to me under Brisson's pen kind of feels like that and I hope it finds its footing pretty soon Uh, Jason continues with an analogy do you remember the old Saturday morning cartoon show called The Real Ghostbusters in the cartoon's main stories we see Ray, Egon, Peter and Winston doing their ghostbusting thing and then there'd be these other segments animated in a simpler more childlike style where we'd follow around the lovable yet irritating apparition known to one and all as Slimer getting into and out of wacky hijinks did these bits take place in the same continuity as the main cartoon? well, yes and no Technically, yes, but emotionally, no. New Mutants is the Slimer of the X-Men line. I love that. That's funny. <laughs> and I do remember that show. That was, a, that was a heck of a show back in the day. I haven't tried watching it in many, many, many years. So I, I would be curious to see if it holds up. But um, no, it's a great analogy. It's definitely happening in the same place, but tonally very, very different. Uh, Jason wraps up with... That is, once again, way more words than I had planned to, t- to, to be typing at you. So until Rob Liefeld reboots Squirrel Girl, make mine X-lapsed. <sighs> Liefeld Squirrel Girl. I don't even think we should put that into the universe, should we? Oof. But, uh, no, thank you so much for uh, writing in, uh, Jason. I-, I always look forward to your, to your missives and uh, your thoughts here because uh, it's incredible stuff. Thank you so much. And I am definitely looking forward to more. So, so thanks again. Uh, We're going to wrap up with a note from uh, our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG, regarding X-Men number 7. He says, a very deep and philosophical episode, Chris. I mean, if they don't have souls, are they our X-Men? And with all this resurrecting, what's the point of life? And he quotes, here, I don't like my life. Let me die and try again. Great job, Chris. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, And yes, the pointlessness of mutant life is... I mean, we talked about it today, didn't we? With uh, Marauders, number nine. It's a Dawn of X problem. A problem with a little P, of course. Um, and I struggle. Most, you know, it's weird. I'm worried about stuff that I shouldn't worry about. You know, I think as tenured comic fans, we're used to being let down, right? We're used to getting all the hype in the world. Then the story happens. And then it peters out. We've all been through it, you know. And we, we, and for some reason, we stick around. Some of us, it's a sickness. Other of others of us, we just, we're just optimists. And I worry a lot about 
this Dawn of X problem with a little p. How do we walk this back? Can we walk this back when this era is capped off? Now, I give a lot of guff to uh, Bendis, Brian Michael Bendis. And, uh, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it I stand by. I feel like he, he will jump on a title or jump into a family of books and gut them, destroy them, fundamentally change them so he can sell a few extra copies and then just leave. He's doing something right now in the Superman books. Superman's secret identity's out. How do you fix that? How do you get that genie back in the bottle? That's toothpaste that won't go back in the tube, right? Fairness, though, Bendis, is, Bendis might be best known for a very long, very long run on the Avengers titles at Marvel. He basically reinvigorated them from around, what, 2004 to 2014-ish? About 10 years on the books, and there were a lot of Avengers books, and most of them had his name on them. But as he was leaving the X-Men book, and I believe, I believe he was actually turning them over to Hickman, uh, as a, you know, ironically enough or conveniently enough for this program, I suppose, he actually put the toys away. You know, early in his run, he had killed the Vision. The Vision was ripped in half by She-Hulk or something like that. Well, at the end of his run, Vision came back, and he made it make sense. The Wasp was sent to a different dimension. At the end of this, at the end of his run, the Wasp came back. So he was bringing back things. He he fixed the toys that he broke. Now, for this mutant resurrections, the resurrection protocols, life being meaningless, death being even more meaningless, are these toys too broken for future creative teams, or? Is there something already planned for whenever Hickman decides to hand off the baton, right? Again, as a cynical and seasoned comic fan, I'm expecting the worst because we're usually given the worst. We're usually let down, or it'll be the devil did it. You know, let's let's make a deal with Mephisto. Let's make a deal with... I mean, we're dealing with Otherworld. Let's get Merlin and Roma in here and just undo everything. Or just make it fit. And go away. Sweep it under the rug. We'll never have to deal with it again. The meaningless of life and death, from which so much of this era hinges. I mean, talk about tough genies to put back in the bottle, right? That's a toughie. And it's something that I I, I shouldn't worry about because I have no say and I'm just some idiot talking into a microphone alone in my room. But uh, I do worry about it. I worry about how do we walk this back. Have we gone too far? Um, We talked a little bit earlier about rules, and maybe we need some. I don't know. It's not for me to say. It's just for me to wonder why, I guess. Uh, It's worth noting, the script for X-Men number 7 was one of the most painfully challenging that I've ever put together for this show. And actually, you know, the, th- the past three episodes have all been wildly challenging from a content and analysis standpoint. We talked about, uh, what was it, X-Force number eight with uh, the right to die. We talked about X-Men number seven, which also played up the right to die and all the crucible stuff and all the, the faith and hope and religious stuff. And then we covered uh, Excalibur number eight, which led into a, a weird aside with me talking about representation. So it's... <laughs> These three last episodes have been challenging, challenging. Uh, but X Men number seven in, sp- in particular, from soup to nuts, 
That was like an eight-hour affair. Not even including reading it, but putting together my thoughts, writing things out, recording. About eight hours. Eight hours to do that episode. So it was a toughie. So uh, I do sincerely appreciate everyone who has taken the time out of their day to listen to it. It means a whole heck of a lot to me. And I've talked about, you know, I've talked about numbers going down here, which is a very tacky thing to do. And I and I will do my best not to moving forward. But uh, yeah, those of you who listen to X-Men number 7, episode 62, uh, that means a lot to me because that was... That one was a lot of time that I didn't have to spend. <laughs> I didn't have that time, and I've still crammed it in to get that episode up. So thank you all so much. Um, now, I think that's where we'll leave it. If uh, anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so very easily. I'm at, uh, where am I? I'm at Ace of Comics on Twitter and at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For show notes and blog posts, you can go to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And there's no hyphen in that X-Lapsed. I probably should have said that. Uh, there's also our little Facebook group, 90s X-Men, where we talk about X-Men stuff. And then, of course, there's the entire audio archives for the Chris and Reggie channel at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Lots of stuff to hear there if, uh, if you're wanting to hear stuff. It's there. But uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. One last giant thank you to everyone for uh, for hanging out, sharing your time, and, and writing in such thoughtful messages here. I very, very much appreciate it. When I wake up and uh, and see that I have some messages, some mail, it uh, it's a great way to to get out of bed. It's it's really really cool um, and uh, means more than I can actually put into words. So thank you all so so much. It means very it probably means too much to me. So thank you. Uh, But until next time, uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 74 of X-Lapsed, and it uh, feels like it's been a while since I've done one of these. Uh, we're currently after Thanksgiving, and I am one aching unit. Um, it's been a very, very busy and hectic week. Uh, to start, I, uh, I decided to, I'd say run a 5K, but I ran some of it and I jogged a lot of it as well. But I did that on Thanksgiving morning, uh, as a way to, like, counterbalance the, uh, massive amounts of, uh, carbohydrates I was going to be taking in throughout the rest of the weekend. And, uh, my feet were hurt, my feet were hurting before I did the 5K. You know, I've... I don't know what it is, my feet are just sore most of the time, and uh, boy, doing a 5k did not help, and then uh, being on my feet for the you know, subsequent 15-16 hours, taking care of all the cooking and the entertaining really did a number on me here. I was walking on my tippy toes the past couple days, and uh, which really doesn't help my calves any, my calves are now killing me, and uh, then... Uh, to add insult to injury, I had a I had a one-on-one bout with uh, my front door. My front door, uh, I got split open <laughs> walking into my front door. Uh, I don't know why I'm sharing this information. I guess just to uh, give you the full uh, crisperience, I guess. Um, we've got these little uh, dia, these like, uh, you know, dias. They're, they're Christmas lights, they're Christmas decorations. And uh, our front yard here has, like, desert landscaping, but we have a little riverbed element to it. So it uh, really facilitates nice little Christmas scenes with the with the decorations and the lights and stuff. So we have these deer, and we make them look like they're by the little stream, you know? One of them fell over. It falls over every damn year because it's a bigger one. And uh, the ground out here in Arizona is very, very hard. So it's hard to get a stake into the ground. So I actually went out and bought... New stakes, like better stakes, better better stakes than what come with the actual, you know, the little gimmicks. So, it fell over. I go to go outside, have my little mallet. I open the door and I realize, oh, I forgot my stakes. I turn around and, bang! Right in the corner of the door, I get I get right in the middle of my forehead, splits me open. I, I you could offer me any amount of money to replicate that, and I wouldn't be able to do it. It's so ridiculous, and it's kind of embarrassing. But uh, So yeah, I spent a few hours kind of dazed, kind of dizzy, very uncomfortable, and uh, wearing a Band-Aid on my head, which made me, uh, in the words of my wife, look like a four-year-old who fell off the jungle gym. So that's been my holiday weekend. Uh, how was yours? Leave, leave me comments below. But anyway... Let's get into the reason why we are here today. We are here to bring the Dawn of X books into the double digits. And we're going to do that with Marauders number 10. Now, this is the first book to come back after the the COVID lapse. You know, the uh, the span of time here, the two, about a two-month span of time where the comics industry was just kind of on pause. So Marauders is what kicks off the Dawn of X post-COVID launch here. So, Marauders number 10 had a June 2020 cover date, though it probably should have had a July cover date. Stories called Leave None to Tell the Tale, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. 
Colors, Edgar Delgado, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski, cover price, $3.99, and this one went on sale May 27th of 2020. And we open at Port Genosha on Krakoa. Port Genosha on Krakoa. All right. I'm going to come clean here. Even after doing this show for several months at this point, uh, and having to actually type the word Krakoa hundreds, if not thousands of times at this point, I swear, like, one out of every five or six times, I still accidentally type Genosha. So I, I just hope that I haven't actually said Genosha instead of Krakoa a bunch of times on the air, but I wouldn't bet a solitary dime that I haven't. Um, so all this to say, having a Port Genosha on Krakoa is probably not going to help me with my confusion. But I, as ever, we will endeavor to do our best. Anyway, here sits the first distillery of Krakoa. Now Forge is working here with our old friend from the Mutant Liberation Front, Tempo. Now, you see, she has a power of chronokinesis, and with that, she can instantly make whiskey age, or anything age, but in this case, whiskey. Unfortunately for her, she really isn't a fan of whiskey. Sebastian Shaw, however, can suck him down like nobody's business, which is exactly what he's doing right now. And so we get a page of them talking about whiskey, none of which Tempo cares in the slightest about. The conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Storm, who's here to talk to Forge. She pulls him off to the side to discuss how the Russians are using his power-dampening weapons. We all know that they have this, they have the pistols, they got the armor, all this incredible stuff here. To which Forge, he ain't buying it. He's very incredulous because he destroyed all of his old files. Storm's like, hey, come on, think a little bit harder. Is there any way this could be your stuff? And unfortunately for him, he recalls that he had uh, this one assistant named Daniels who had a photographic memory. So, uh-oh. From here, roll call. Forge, Tempo, Sebastian Shaw, Storm, The Stepford Cuckoos, Mr. Sinister, Nightcrawler, Professor X, Magneto, Emma Frost, Iceman, Pyro, Bishop, Callisto, Christian Frost, Mask, and Egg. Whew. That's a lot of players here, but uh, we're going to knock out most of them before we even get to the credits page, so... I don't know why there were so many damn names in this roll call where some of them are going to appear like in one panel. And so let's let's uh, let's do this right here. Before we get to our double page spread of creds, we have a meeting of the Quiet Council where everyone is thankfully sitting in their proper seats. Uh, Sophie Cuckoo is here to tell the council that Emma will not be attending today because she's dealing with Ominous Verendi, the armorers, and a co-op between Madripoor, Russia, and Brazil. She also reveals that a certain scientist, with photographic memory, went missing two days after Xavier's address to the world back during Hoxpox. Now, Shaw kind of shrugs it off and suggests, hey, why don't we just send X-Force in there to deal with them? Because X-Force will kill people, left and right. They do it all the time. Sophie repeats herself and says the Marauders are dealing with this. So Emma's off the table right now. The Marauders are going to war. Magneto then communicates with the Cuckoo telepathically to tell her to pass something on to the White Queen. And that message is that they leave no survivors. Eh, so much for that pesky kill-no-man thing, eh? Hmm. Okay, now credits. Then an info page. It's an email from Call Me Kate to Nightcrawler, and I would assume this was probably written before Marauders number 6. 
she talks about old times, including how she was scared by Storm's mohawk back in the long ago. You know me. I'm a sucker for callbacks. I love any callback to, you know, simpler times and just things that I'm nostalgic for. But do we really need to keep calling back to this same bit where she was scared of Storm's mohawk? I swear they've mentioned it a dozen times in, in ten issues. Can we get past that? Maybe think of something else? Anywho, in this email, she questions why Krakoa has not accepted her, and she also really wants to reconnect with her fuzzy elf. That's not a euphemism. And uh, even invites him to set sail with her on the Marauder. We jump back to comics, and the armorers are on that boat, and they spot an iceberg. Only they're in the South Pacific, where there really shouldn't be any such animal. Of course, we know it's Iceman. So Bobby, he hoists the ship out of the drink. Then Emma swoops overhead with the Mercury, which is now a flying saucer. Uh, Bishop and Forge board the bad guy's ship. And Bishop has changed his look here. He has uh, his shorter hair now, which makes me wonder if this will remain consistent throughout the rest of the Dawn of X books. I doubt it, but hopefully. I feel like the, the Dawn of X teams don't know that each other exists sometimes. So we'll see. We'll see. Now they happen across Daniels, the photographic memory dude. He apologizes and tells Forge that he was forced to work with these uh, these geeks here. Elsewhere on the boat, Emma and Pyro are also there. Emma unbuttons her top, which reveals, well, nothing, really. Um, it would seem that Ms. Frost has uh, very wide-set nipples or is using copious amounts of double-sided tape. So we see cleavage, not much more. I mean, it's not any more revealing than what Emma usually wears, which is to say, not a whole heck of a lot. Now, she saunters into a hallway full of goons whose sudden southward rushing of blood makes them easy prey for telepathic suggestion, and so Emma has them shoot each other in the knees. The captain of the ship rushes over to the self-destruct button, which, of course, all boats have, right? No, I'm kidding, of course. Ominous Verandy would definitely instruct their underlings to not allow themselves to be captured at any cost. I'm just kidding, you know. Unfortunately for him, Callisto is here to stop him from pushing that button. Emma then enters the scene and reveals that they're going to beam up the bad guys to the Mercury, where their memories will be erased, and they will return with only warm feelings towards mutants and the oppressed. I guess if you can't reason with people, you just mess with their mind. Now, once everybody's on board the Mercury, the saucer blasts the Verendi boat to smithereens. Inside the flying saucer, uh, Bishop asks Christian Frost how the Mercury does what it does. Like, how is it, an, how is it a UFO right now? You know, if it was a submarine, it was a boat. Who knows what it's going to be? Uh, and he also wants to know how Christian can pilot the thing using a piano. Christian ain't telling, and so I guess this mystery will live on. Back on Krakoa, Forge chats up Daniels. Daniel says that he put a lot of hints into his recent work for Verendi in hopes that Forge would pick up on them. Forge reveals that he did not. We then learn that poor Daniels will never be able to return home again. Instead, he's going to uh, take up golf in sunny Rio Verde, Arizona. We go to an info page, and it's Kurt's email reply to Call Me Kate, which I hope he wrote before Marauders number 6. He talks a bit about Kitty's Krakoan handicap and agrees that they really need to set aside some time to reconnect. He'd really like to take that voyage on the Marauder. We wrap up the issue at the hatchery, where yet another attempt at bringing Kitty back has resulted in failure. Egg suggests that Kitty may just not be revivable, and Xavier kind of agrees. We wrap up with the somber note that the next issue of Marauders will contain an actual funeral for a mutant. 
Next episode, welcome to the double digits, Excalibur number 10. It's worth noting here that this issue has one of them reading order pages at the end of it, right? And it is pre-pandemic and includes Children of the Atom number one releasing on April 15th. And it's a red book, no less, so it's a can't-miss book. Children of the Atom never came out. It is still forthcoming. Uh, we're just going to have to wait until after X of Tens to see it. Though it's interesting to see the uh, the pre-pandemic reading order here, uh, including release dates that have already passed, you know, because this, this book came out a couple months late. I don't know why they didn't update it. I don't know why they didn't just omit it. But here it is. I mean, we had a month's worth of books where we didn't get a reading order, which really freaked me out. And here we are getting one that doesn't matter and doesn't really amount to anything. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they, they must have just printed these up and just not distributed them, is, is my best guess. But let's talk about what we learned here. Stop me if you heard this one before. This was a good issue of Marauders. It wasn't a great one, but it was good. Though I swear it flew by much quicker than usual. Um, by the time we got to the ending and the hatchery, I was sure there should have been a few more pages left. Not that it ended abruptly or anything. The pacing was fine. It just... It was just a pretty damn breezy read, right? So, what do we have to talk about? Um, I suppose we could start at the end. Which, unfortunately, doesn't have quite the oomph that it might have had I read this last spring. Kitty can't be revived... And so, for the first time since Hoxbox, we're going to have a funeral for a mutant. Of course, we already know that they will find a way to bring her back with very, very curly hair, but she will be back. So yeah, certainly by no fault of the book, but I was left a little bit oomphless by this reveal. Um, how about Emma mind-wiping everybody and making them stop hating? Does that seem, I don't know, a little too easy? I mean, it's kind of the perfect play, right? It kind of begs the question, at least for me, why hasn't Emma just pulled this move on everybody who hates mutants? We've got groups like the Right, the Friends of Humanity, you know, all these loser groups, right? Why not just make them come together, sing Kumbaya, and start loving mutants and the oppressed? It seems very, very... I don't know, like throwaway. It's like... I mean, if you, play, if you ever play like a role-playing game, like a, a video game RPG... And you get to the point where you have the best spell in the game, best magic spell. Why would you even bother using anything else, right? This move from Emma here where she could just make people stop hating. That is, that's the magic bullet, right? Just do it. I don't care for this method. And I mean, arguably, it's even a little bit villainous. I mean, if we strip away all the good that this can do by making hate go away, still at the end of the day, it's, it's an invasion and, and perhaps a step over the line. I don't know if that's what Magneto meant by leave no witnesses or whatever he was, he, whatever it was that he said. I think he was thinking just just kill all these fools, but I don't know. Maybe Emma was just being a uh, trying to adhere to the Krakoan Constitution. I don't know. As I was reading this, I had this uh, odd little dissonance where I was sort of trying to put myself into the shoes of a day one comics reader, which I haven't been in a while now. Because this issue of Marauders was the only Dawn of X book to come out for two months. Even the issue after this, Excalibur number 10, readers of the day would have to wait two whole weeks after this to get that. So for a lot of people, this was it. They haven't read an X-comic or new X-comic since the end of March. Here we are at the end of May, and you ain't getting another one until the middle of June. 
So this was it. Now, this isn't the fault of anybody, and it's absolutely a victim of circumstance, but maybe there was a better issue that could have been put out, which may have been a little bit more satisfying for the starving X-Fan. I mean, again, not the fault of this book. And I mean, there are several members of the reviewing hive mind that scored this a perfect 10 out of 10, so maybe I'm talking out my ass right now. I don't know. And, uh... Yeah, 10 out of 10. Um, I know I rail on about this, probably to stupid amounts here, but that's kind of saying that this issue could not have been any better than it was. I, I feel like I feel like there, there needs to be like a Chrome extension or a, a browser extension where if you run a review site and you use 10 out of 10 more than once in a month, you get red flagged and it's like, maybe you try somewhere a little bit better because this person is just giving giving perfect scores so they can get uh, the pros to share their work. It's pathetic. But this was good. This was a good issue. Wasn't a great issue. Much of it felt like filler. Actually, outside of the ending, it felt a lot like filler. But at least it was mostly well-written filler. So good, not great. Uh, Probably not the satisfying issue you'd be looking forward to for two months. But, uh, you know, I'm reading it the way I'm reading it. You know, it was just another issue. I, I don't have that starvation that someone might have had back in the end of May. Where I guess you could go one of two ways. You could just absolutely love it because you're just so starving for anything. Or you could feel let down because it didn't really scratch the itch, right? Victim of circumstance, absolutely. Good, not great. I am looking forward to the next issue with the uh, with the funeral. That's uh, that's bound to be interesting. So I guess we had to get there. So fair enough. <laughs> that's pretty much all I got to say about Marauders number ten. Now let's hop into the mailbag. Here we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number nine. He says it's interesting that you describe this issue as not being a red issue. Of course, the red issue is referring to the you know the reading order page where the red books are the can't miss ones. But Damien continues, In light of reading X of Tens, I can tell you that this actually is a red issue. In fact, it explains loads of stuff that I didn't understand when reading the first few weeks of X of Tens. I get more and more worried that you are going to hate X of Tens when you get there. Personally, I'm loving that crossover, so I'm finding myself loving Otherworld stories for the first time. Even Alan Moore couldn't cause me to care about Otherworld until now. I'm not sure if I'm just suffering from the comics variant of Stockholm Syndrome. And I tell you, I haven't always hated Otherworld. I thought Alan Davis did some good work with it, but his was mostly played for, you know, wow, this is a very weird place. You know, it was, it was more about the surreality of it than actual, you know, regalness and uh, royalty and Knights of the Round Table sort of stuff. But uh, as far as X of Tens is concerned, I'm actually a little nervous about that because. This whole project was started to, you know, catch me up so I'd be able to understand X of Tens. And here we are. We're rapidly approaching it. And before we know it, we're going to be knee-deep in it. And I'm no longer worried about not understanding it. Now I'm worried that I'm just going to despise it. <laughs> so I think this is going to be interesting. Um, hopefully hopefully I, I get that same Stockholm Syndrome or I just grow to appreciate it or maybe the take that they, they give us is something that that I can jive with. So, fingers crossed, 
It'll be interesting either way, I guess. Uh, Damien continues, Where we agree wholeheartedly is on Marcus Toe's art. He's getting better and better every month and is particularly suited to interpersonal relationships, which I also believe is Teeny Howard's biggest strength. And yes, absolutely. I would say Toe does a lot of the heavy lifting here in the scenes that I don't care about. And he really, really brings it for the scenes I do care about. Um, Despite Otherworld not being my jam at all, he is a great fit for this book. Uh, Nothing looks bad here. Everything looks beautiful. Um, Whether it's Shogo Dragon flying through the skies or Rogue and Psylocke just having a a little chat. It all all looks great. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Excalibur number 9. Uh, next, we have Al Sedano, and he just wrapped up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 1s with Fallen Angels number 1. He says, sorry it's been a while, had some family stuff taking up my time, but now I'm back and raring to get into the next Dawn of X volume, but first, we have to finish off the first one. Fallen Angels number 1. This was interesting and felt different from the other titles, more personal, more like a solo title for Psylocke, which I guess is her name now. I don't really know her. I'd stopped reading when she first showed up, and by the time I came back, she was already dead. So I have to ask if her complete lack of understanding of how to talk to people is new or an established part of her personality. Because that conversation between her and Sinister was painful. I was waiting for him to say, wink, wink. And, uh, first, interesting is probably the kindest word I've ever seen attributed to Fallen Angels, so... That's something, for sure. Um, And yes, the dialogue here was pure, 100% unfiltered cringe. (laughs) Not great. Uh, I'm not sure how or when she came back from her legacy virus death. I think she was part of, like, the sisterhood of of evil mutants or something like that. I don't remember where it happened. And it's been a long time since I've read anything, so I can't say whether or not she's supposed to be this socially inept. Or if they just amped it up for this, you know freshman creative writing take on the character? I I don't know. All I know is I didn't like it. Uh, Al wraps up with, uh, let me finish off month one with my ranking so far. He has a few ties here. Number one, the best number one of Dawn of X was Marauders, which is a very, very uh, popular pick. Uh, Number two is a tie between X-Men and New Mutants. Number four is a tie between X-Force and Fallen Angels. Which leaves number six as Excalibur. Ouch. Poor Excalibur. <laughs> Excalibur, I believe I had as my fifth uh, book of the week there, where uh, he, it just narrowly beat out Fallen Angels. So Al has uh, Fallen Angels just edging out Excalibur. So very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. I am definitely interested in hearing... Any positive takes on Fallen Angels that we can get here Because I just want to understand it <laughs> So uh, if anybody out there has any uh, positive things to say about Fallen Angels Please reach out and let me know We're going to wrap up with an email from Andrew Franklin Regarding Hellions number 1 He says Well, I caved in and decided to start reading Hellions along with the pod Havoc was always my favorite X-Man, and it's a shame that he died in the last issue of X-Factor Volume 1 and has never been seen again. Uh, To which I say, uh, yeah, this show isn't called Mutant X-Lapsed for a reason. (laughs) We don't, uh, we pretend, or we just say that never happened. Uh, Andrew continues. Now, even though I stopped reading when Morrison left, this isn't my first time revisiting the X-Men. I bought all six issues of Astonishing X-Men a few years ago where Havoc was the lead, featuring two of my other favorite X-Men, Dazzler and Colossus. I have nothing good to say about those issues. 
And I've been collecting those issues myself. Uh, another volume of Astonishing it seemed like such a weird play, especially at the time. If we're thinking about the same one here, when you know both of the ongoing X books were color based, so you had you know X Men Blue, X Men Gold, and then Astonishing X Men, it just made no sense to me. I haven't read any of it yet, so I really can't speak to its quality. But I do remember feeling like they were just like, why did they even bother establishing the blue and gold if they're just going to do an Astonishing book on top of it? Felt very very weird. Um, and uh, I hope that we will eventually find out that it uh, served a purpose, but I guess that's uh, neither here nor there. Andrew continues, I'm writing these thoughts after reading Hellions number 1, but before listening to the episode covering it. I wanted to get my own knee-jerk reaction down, good or bad, before reconsidering things. Let me say up top that I thought the issue was fine. I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. I do have issues with the premise, though. I'm aware Alex was turned evil for reasons, and that he was turned not evil for reasons. And the idea of lingering evil isn't bad per se, but I don't like how it's handled here. It seems very abrupt, like he was fine up until they needed to shoehorn him into a book with the bad guys, and then what do you know? I guess he's not all fixed after all. If it was explored a bit in an issue of X-Men or Giant Size Havoc special, it would have made a little bit more sense organically to me. And I think that was my main misgiving with the Hellions as well. Uh, I'm not sure why they'd shoehorn Alex in here without bothering to give him the benefit of the doubt. I I talked a bit about, you know, we have him stood before the Quiet Council, which is all people, or which is mostly people, who know and love and have worked with Alex for years now. And it's just like they're putting him on trial with Scalp Hunter and and Nanny. (laughs) It just seems like... Maybe, you know, maybe give this guy a little bit of the benefit here. So, yeah, it does come out of nowhere, though. Maybe that lends credence to the theory that this is all being, like, orchestrated or manipulated for a greater reason. Maybe Havoc is an Xavier Mole on the team to watch what Sinister's up to. I don't know. Andrew continues. My other problem with the premise is the fact that after all the times we've seen or heard the Krakoan X-Men brutalize enemies in these Dawn of X books, I could be wrong, but I think characters have killed before. This time it's too much? Alex has to pay the price? Give me a break. And aren't there incredibly powerful telepaths who could help Alex with his lingering evil? Wouldn't that be more sensible solution to either Stasis or having him serve on the penal squad? I have a big problem with this. At least Scott stood up for him. That was my favorite moment, when Magneto says if Alex had killed someone, they'd have no choice but to exile him to the pit, and Cyclops tells the council that that, that had that happened, he would have no other choice either. That was great. And yeah, it's interesting, the, you know, the kill-no-man law is conveniently forgotten whenever the situation seems to call for it. And uh, I'm pretty sure I mentioned during the reading, it's like, if this is such a problem, just put Havoc on X-Force. Right? They kill people left and right. I mean, Jean Grey killed a bunch of people a couple issues back, so... Yeah, put Havoc on X-Force, right? Hell, I mean, just this very issue of Marauders that we just covered on this episode has Magneto telling the Cuckoo that, hey, don't leave any witnesses. So it's very, very convenient when the Quiet Council decides they want to go, you know, by the book with their laws and uh, the self-righteous way they did it, which where it's like... I understand the concept of deniability, but like Magneto being like aghast that Alex may have almost killed somebody. It's like, come on, dude. <laughs> come on. 
give me a break here. And then Storm kicking Cyclops out of the meeting because he had an objection. Very, very weird. Very, very cold and very kind of up their own asses. Uh, Andrew continues. I, re- I don't really enjoy books about villains or making villains edgy anti-heroes, but to Hellion's credit, this really doesn't feel like one of those books. The idea of having the more antisocial and violent mutants on a team to learn to, to use their talents in a constructive way is a good idea for a team. It's still hard to accept that Sinister is as trusted as he seems to be, and I really don't like the way he's written. I like that they made a point to show that Cyclops also doesn't trust Sinister, and having Psylocke there to keep an eye on things is a good excuse to have her in this book. I'm not sure Scott chose her specifically. Maybe she's serving penance for fallen angels. The rest of the team is an interesting mix of characters, and I like the individual segments they got, except for Wildchild, who is just boring to me. And I, I do love the idea of Psylocke being jammed into this book with the bad guys to pay for the fact that so many of us spent like 30 bucks on that awful Fallen Angels miniseries. I also do love, uh, if, I, if I can be serious here, that since she is included here, I feel like that greatly reduces the possibility that Fallen Angels will ever come back for a season two. So keep her here, keep her prominent, keep Fallen Angels out of the solicitations. Please and thank you. I've come to tolerate Sassy Sinister a bit. Um, as long as I'm able to mentally separate like the real Sinister that I grew up with with this weirdo version, I think I'll be okay. Um, sometimes they do go a step too far, like him telling Scott to, you know, clean his drawers. That was a little weird, but uh, some of the other stuff made me chuckle. And a wild child, hey, he came from Alpha Flight, so he can't really... He, just can't help being boring you know it's it's kind of a repository for a few cool but mostly a lot of boring characters so wild child is just a victim of circumstance uh, andrew wraps up with so all in all this was fine and though the nostalgia bait of revisiting inferno stuff has me roll my eyes a bit i'm curious to see what they actually do with this book and i'm excited to listen to the episode and hear what you had to say about it well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts here. And by now, you you might know that I I really like this one, though I can totally see why it might not work quite as well for everybody. Um, it might have just been that I went into it with such low expectations. You know, I mentioned during the discussion that I called it an Alvaro book because it's just a random mishmash assortment of characters that wouldn't it be cool if they were on a team together with really no step two. You know, it's like step one, put together a wacky team. Step two, sell a book. (laughs) It doesn't really matter what they do as long as they're wacky and, 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 you know, just obscure. So I really went into it with low expectations. Um, I also thought that this was going to be the X-Men take on Suicide Squad. When, frankly, I feel like the comics industry probably doesn't need the Suicide Squad's take on the Suicide Squad anymore. (laughs) Because it's just beyond done. Uh, So that really didn't fill me with excitement. But, uh... With that being said, I thought this was really good, uh, and I'm looking forward to more, which I think we'll be getting to, uh, I think it's episode 81 will be uh, Hellions number two. So we don't have to wait too long, uh, just, a, just a little while to see how this all plays out. But I hope you uh, continue to uh, read along and share your thoughts uh, preemptively before you listen to the show, because uh, I think that's a, that's a really cool way to do it. So thank you so much for sharing, and thanks to everybody for sharing. If anybody else out there would like to share, you can do so easily. I am at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. 
You can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men and the full Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That'll do it for today. We are officially in the double digits of the Dawn of X-Books, which didn't think we'd ever get here, but here we are. Um... Huge thank you to everyone for uh, you know sharing your time with me and sharing your thoughts as well. I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. And uh, until next time, as always, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 90 of X-Lapsed. I can hardly believe it. We are within 10 episodes of hitting 100. Never thought we'd get here, but uh, here we are. Now, today, we're covering a book that, if the uh, little tab on the cover is anything to go by, it looks like we're officially on the path to X of Tens. That's another thing I never thought we'd get to, but hey, we're almost there. We're getting there. We're getting there soon enough. Now, today we're going to be talking about Marauders number 11. This had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called To Live and Die on Krakoa. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors Edgar Delgado. Letters VCs Corey Petit. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale August 12th of 2020. Now we open... On a letter written from Nightcrawler to call me Kate. You see, we know Kate's dead. Nightcrawler knows she's dead too, but he's not given up hope that the Five will be able to bring her back. And so he's basically journaling for her. You know, he's keeping her up to date on all the goings-on in, on Krakoa, so when she comes back, she can read these, she'll be right back up to speed. Now he signs off before bamfing over to the beach, where we see Kitty herself laid out in a little boat, in her Red Queen attire with a pair of coins covering her eyes. And uh, I guess that's something out of a Greek legend, apparently. Uh, The coins are a payment to Charon, or Charon, uh, the ferryman of Hades. 
which uh, I didn't know anything about until I did a little bit of reading as I was putting together these notes, and that's pretty interesting stuff. From here, we jump immediately into our roll call. We've got Emma Frost, Storm, Lockheed, Nightcrawler, Professor X, Healer, Elixir, Proteus, Hope, Tempest, and Egg. Then, of course, our double-page spread of creds. And then we're right back at our burial at sea for Captain Call Me Kate. Now, the little boat is surrounded by a bunch of notable and not-so-notable mutants. Uh, Colossus is conspicuous by his absence. And I'm looking around at this group... And uh, I think I see Agent X. I mean, who the hell would have ever invited Agent X? And I think that's the most I've ever thought about Agent X in about 20 years. That's really such a weird inclusion. Anyway, now the ceremony begins. Um, Now, we learn that there will never be a cemetery on Krakoa. And so burial at sea is the route they're taking. They're also holding on to the hope that this is only a temporary hiatus from life for Kitty. Now, the boat is filled with roses and then tipped into the Pacific. Magic conjures up a spark and passes it over to Pyro, who ignites the little boat, and it burns as it drifts into the ocean. We follow Emma back to the White Palace, where she, well, she has a breakdown. Um, She starts crying uncontrollably, but uh, her crying is interrupted by the shattering of a nearby window. Now, she's annoyed. She doesn't know who's bothering her at such a time, so she goes to check on it, and she discovers that it was Lockheed. Lockheed's returned. She decides to read the little dragon's mind, and, uh, well, now she knows everything. She knows exactly what happened to Kitty that night. Uh, Emma then diamonds up and punches a wall, vowing that Sebastian Shaw will pay for what he'd done. From here, we go to an info page, and it's, uh... It's a short bit detailing Professor X's remarks regarding Kitty's passing, um, like a eulogy of sorts. It even references the time that she called him a jerk, which, you know, not bad. Back to Emma, she's still mad as a hornet, but she decides that she ought to be a little bit cooler about this. She doesn't want to act purely on emotion, but she will, she will make sure to take care of Sebastian. He will still pay for everything he did that night. From here, Emma takes Lockheed to the healing garden so the Morlock healer could take a look at him. And she learns that the tiny dragon was loved and cared for while he was away, which, you know, we have seen bits and pieces of that during the last handful of issues. You know, he was fished out of the Pacific, and he was kind of helped back to health by uh, that young girl. Now, Emma tells the Morlock healer to, you know, keep this between us. Don't tell anybody that Lockheed's returned. She then calls out to Professor X to request that he and the Five give Kitty's resurrection one more try. Charles remarks that, hey... Nightcrawler already asked him to do that exact same thing, and he already agreed, so we're good to go for another try. However, if it doesn't work this time, they're going to have to move on to other resurrectees. Now, that isn't to say they're going to stop trying to bring Kitty back, but she's not going to be their one and only focus from that point on. Now, we shift scenes to something completely different. We're on a subway car, and it's it's a crowded subway car, which becomes a little more so when Storm enters. Now, over the course of a couple of panels, all of the other commuters bring one filter out due to the suggestion of the Stepford Cuckoos. Now, the one remaining commuter is a woman in a wheelchair who we will soon learn is Dolores Ramirez from the X-Desk, and we've seen her pop up in various info pages up to this point. Now, Storm and Dolores strike up a conversation, and we find out that the X-Desk was responsible for putting out some intel, which wound up helping the X-Men and saving a lot of human lives in the process. Now, the X-Desk, they suggested that Ominous Verandi was going to uh, be putting out tainted miracle meds, 
which gave the X-Men enough time to swap him out with good ones, thus saving many lives as well as the X-Men's reputation. Dolores is pleased that everything worked out okay, and uh, as she wheels herself out to the platform, she thanks Storm and the X-Men for those miracle meds which saved her mother's life. Storm's happy that everything worked out. From here, we hop back to the hatchery, and the five are back to trying to resurrect Kitty, but that same problem still remains. The gold ball husk that Kitty's in just won't break out. Emma suggests that maybe Kitty's just out of phase. Wait a minute, did, did, did somebody say phase? Dun dun dun, Emma suddenly has an idea which you'd think Professor X would have considered far earlier during this exercise. I mean, Kitty's whole deal here is that she phases through things, so, like, no duh. Emma suggests that Kitty wouldn't break out of the gold ball, she would just phase through. And so she reaches out, and Kitty finally emerges from the gold ball. The five are overjoyed that this finally worked, and note that they'll know better should there be a next time for Kitty. Egg comments that it took some took him like a hundred tries, but it was all worth it. Tempest corrects him and says it was actually only 18 tries. And at that, Nightcrawler's ears perk up. I'm not sure why. I don't know if 18 tries will wind up coming back around. I don't know if there's anything significant about that number for Nightcrawler. Maybe we'll find out. Kitty is then reunited with Lockheed, and she and Emma share a little mind chat about what went down in Kitty's final moments. It's worth noting that Kitty's final memory is from before that fatal mission. Now, Kitty knows that Shaw struck first and that they will be taking care of business. Now, it's also worth noting that Kitty's knuckle tattoos are gone, which makes me far happier than I thought it would, which is odd. Though, if the upcoming covers are anything to go by, they won't be gone for long. We'll wrap up with one final info page, and this one's from the X-Desk, and has Dolores writing about her surprise meeting with Storm, and it would appear that this gal might be smitten. That's the end of the issue. Next time, we'll be talking about X-Force number 11. But first, how about we talk about what we learned here? I feel like we're back in form with this issue. <laughs> this was a really, really great one. Um, I almost wish we came back to this issue instead of that Phantom X one. <laughs> this would have been a much uh, a much sweeter surprise. or not, not so much a surprise, since this is a great series overall, but... I think it would have been a smoother transition from our little hiatus to come back with such a strong issue. That all said, though, the gimmick that this issue hinges on may be a little bit obvious. Um, you know, we talk about suspension of disbelief. That's something that a lot of us talk about, but, I mean, look at what we're reading here. Look at the stuff we're trying to analyze. This is fantastical stuff with superheroes and mutants here. With that said... It's hard for me to suspend my disbelief that Professor X presided over 17 attempts to resurrect Kitty and not one time thought about the fact that her entire mutant ability is phasing through solid boundaries. I mean, even as just like a floated-out theory on a lark, I'd see Xavier giving it a shot before, you know, before just denouncing the whole thing and saying, hey, you know, we'll, we'll try her again later on. I mean, it really, it took Emma to step in and intervene. And the fact that it actually took her saying the word phase in order to jog her memory to the fact that, oh, duh, Kitty, the girl we've been laser-focused on for the past however long, phases through things. It's a little weird. I mean, it's hard to suspend our disbelief that, I mean, that Professor X would just be that out to lunch and not consider 
Kitty's uh, mutant ability. But at the end of the day, it got us where we needed to be, and it gave us a really good story, so I guess we'll have to allow it. Uh, we also learn a bit more about the X-Desk here, and uh, gotta admit, it was a bit of a zig where I was expecting a zag. Now, admittedly, I do read the info pages. However, it's often a case of, like, in one ear and out the other, or maybe it's in one eye and out the other. Whatever it is. I don't feel like I retain quite as much from the text pages as I do the actual comics content. Uh, and so, I just assumed that the X-Desk was... Well, maybe not like an anti-mutant sort of a, you know, seat or a columnist or a informant, but almost certainly not a pro-mutant one. I, I always assumed they were either benign to mutants or, you know, just filling in information uh, for a group that may not be so kind toward mutants. That said, I was very surprised here that Dolores is very much pro-mutant and pro-Krakoa. I feel like this was a very nice scene, and I... I you know, I'm kind of looking forward to more dealings between the Marauders and the X-Desk moving forward, if there are going to be any. Uh, the art here was good, uh, but, you know, it's almost unfair to put Caselli on interiors when we've got such a stunning cover by Dodderman. I mean, it's not a fair comparison, and Caselli is a fine artist, but I gotta admit, I became a little bit deflated when I saw that it wasn't Dodderman on the interiors. Uh, it seemed... A little disappointing. Um, overall, though, I mean, same as it ever was with Marauders. It's a great issue, but, I mean, there's not a whole lot to talk about other than saying, I really, really enjoyed this. Um, and this is one I would wholeheartedly recommend. And uh, I gotta say, if this is the path to X of Tens, I think we're, uh, I think we're, going, we're going off on the right foot here. And I'm looking forward to more. And uh, next episode, the uh, X-Force number 11 also has that Path to X of Tens tab on it, so we're keeping with it, at least for another day. But that's all I've got to say about this issue of Marauders. Really, really fun stuff. Um, didn't answer all my questions, but uh, I, I was kind of expecting us to find out a little bit more about why Kitty can't pass through the Krakoan gateways with her resurrection, but uh, I suppose that's being kept for another time, so we'll, you know... We'll keep our eyes and ears open for that as we move forward, but uh, great issue overall. Great issue overall, but uh, with that said, let's head into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters. First from Damien, and he's talking about Empire, colon, X-Men number two. He says, let's go in hard. Who thinks swearing is funny nowadays? Surely that, sip, that ship sailed decades ago. I try not to curse in my feedback because I know you don't like it, but the try-hard dialogue is almost making me swear. And it's funny, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really anti-cursing uh, or anything. There have actually been a handful of times where I've wanted to curse on air, and uh, off mic I do have a fairly filthy mouth. I, you know, I'm from New York, it's kind of <laughs> just something we do. So it kind of comes naturally to me. Um, so it's not something I it's 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 something that I have to actually like try not to do more often than not. I've wanted to curse a lot of late. I've struggled um, with saying that these books, these Dawn of X books, are full of space stuff instead of you know <laughs> cursing. Um, and there've even been a bunch of uh, blog posts from uh, years past where I was discussing books that I thought were absolute garbage. Uh, things like. Things like Heroes in Crisis and Superman Grounded come to mind immediately. And those pieces came very, very close to being nothing more than just, like, curse-laden rants. 
I, I always try to like regulate or govern what I say or type when uh, when I'm especially you know angry and uh, dismissive of a story or an arc or an issue. I always try to pretend that my grandparents are reading or listening to what I put out, which helps to keep me a little bit cleaner than uh, I may otherwise be. That said, if you've heard any of my guest appearances elsewhere on other people's channels, I'm a bit looser with my language. And, um, I mean, there are even episodes on this channel where I've gone off. Uh, the young animal gatherums are... <laughs> those are a little dicey at, uh, at times. Now, I, I don't know why Hickman and company have decided that, like, cursing equals comedy. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. It's like... It's like I remember as I was graduating high school and the uh, the yearbook people would be coming around and they would try, be try to take a they would try to take like the candid shots, right? They would take the candids of everybody and everybody thought it was the coolest thing in the world to like give them the middle finger. And uh, and, and I'm sure I thought it was hilarious as well when I was 16, 17 years old, but you think about that now, and if like if you ever like just see like a group of like sixteen or seventeen year olds giving middle fingers to the camera, it's, I'm sitting here at forty one years old, just like wow, <laughs> how pathetic, you know. Uh, and maybe these are being written for a different audience. I really don't know. And and I'm uh, you know even going further, the reason I first signed up for a YouTube account back in probably boy like mid two thousand six or something. I think I only did it to subscribe to the uh, the angry video game nerd. And his old gimmick was the fact that he was cursing at all video games. And it was novel, right? I mean, for the time. But here we are in 2020 or whatever year you're listening to this in. And it's just like, I, I don't know that. The, I think, like you said, the ship sailed. It's not funny anymore. I think we've all kind of, we've been there. And it's kind of just, a, we got the t-shirt and it's time to move on. And I don't get why, I really don't get why Hickman and, and the crew are just so, so, they think it's the coolest thing in the world. I don't get it. Damien continues. It turns out my comment on the last episode was based on a misunderstanding. I thought the Katadi were in Wakanda when they were actually in Genosha all along. It does make me wonder why they were talking about Vibranium last issue, though. And yes, this was a very awkwardly written bit. Uh, like I said last episode, I thought the same thing. I thought we were in Wakanda. And uh, I even, like, lambasted it for being, like, cheap heat. You know, it's like, hey, we said Wakanda, give me my bonus. You know, it's... And that wasn't the case. It's It was just very awkwardly done. Damien continues. I really hate horticulture. <laughs> me too. Uh, they're just a number of dated jokes rolled together, and I automatically flinch every time I see them. As you know, I read a lot of Marvel on Unlimited, and they hype new releases to you. I remember seeing this series being promoted and clicking through to the description, seeing horticulture, and saying no. <laughs> their, their presence made me reject a free comic. Of course, I knew in the back of my head that I'd eventually have to read it to keep up with X-Lapsed. And it's funny, um... I honestly almost gave up right there when I saw them on the last page of Empire Number One. I even thought about putting out like a like a fake half episode, where all I would do is get through the synopsis, get to horticulture, and just say nope, <laughs> and then end it right there in like mid sentence, no outro music, just dead stop. 
And we would just never mention the Empire book again after that. We would just go on to whatever was going to come next. And uh, th- there have been a number, on- only a couple of times actually, in my comics commentary career where I felt that way. Um, what was it? The Law was a awful, awful um, DC miniseries featuring the Charlton hero characters. So like... Uh, the Blue Beetle and Captain Adam and uh, Judo Master Peacemaker came out probably right around the turn of the century. And it was a six-issue miniseries. And I think I made it three issues in, uh, reviewing it on the site, and I just stopped. I couldn't do it anymore. I think that was the one and only thing I actually noped out of because it was just so bad. Um, Of late... I mean, there have been a couple of times lately where I've wanted to stop, and they all seem to have to do with something Hickman has written. Um, the Brood Invasion from not too long ago with the you know with Brew eating the king egg. That was almost it for the show. Um, this miniseries, Empire X-Men, was another bullet that we narrowly dodged. Um, I'm almost thinking that the head of X-Crown should just be passed over to Jerry Duggan at this point. Give it to him. This guy, Jerry Duggan, is is a smart writer who is also funny. Let him do it. If we're going to do comedy in these books, give it to Jerry Duggan. And and I'm thinking about your looking on Marvel Unlimited, and I, I can't I can't wrap my head around the fact that they hyped a book with horticulture. I mean, if horticulture are your selling point, it might be time to change careers. Um, if this were a TV show. Horticulture would be like an instant channel change situation for me. It's like, nope, not going to do that. Damien continues, The scene with Black Tom just made me think of my allergies. I imagine the Morlock healer is struggling to get around to the mortally wounded members of X-Force because he's got a mile-long queue of hay fever sufferers. Yeah, there's so much pollen, right? It's funny. Um, I grew up in New York, spent you know 18 years out there. Never had allergies a day in my life. Um, my mother and my sister, however, were just ravaged with allergies. Uh, I remember my sister got the allergy test where they do, they do like the 20 little pinpricks on your forearm, you know? And like all of them blew up to, to say that she was allergic to it. We come out here to Arizona. My mother and my sister are fine. I get allergies. And it's ridiculous. I, I can't... I've got to use, like, nasal sprays and pills, and the spring is just an awful time. And, I mean, we're going into the spring pretty soon, especially out here in Arizona. The spring comes very early, and I am not looking forward to it at all. So, yeah, seeing Black Tom manifest in pollen and dust and mold. Yeah, I, I totally see why uh, your, your mind would go to allergies, and now mine will as well. Uh, Damien wraps up with, The art was nice again, and it was better than issue one, so maybe by issue four we'll have a series that doesn't make me angry. And yeah, the art here was definitely very nice. And I do agree that it was better than the first issue as well. Um, I think... I mean, I'm thinking about this series, as I've had a few people write in about it, and as I reflect on it, I'm still angry at it. I mean, it's solidly in our rear view at this point, but it was just so half-assed and pointless when... I mean, it didn't need to be, did it? I, I, I think, I think Damien himself said in his response to the first issue of Empire, he said everyone involved in this issue could do better, and he's 100% right on with that. There's, there's absolutely no reason 
for Empire colon X-Men to be this bad, this lazy, and this half-assed as it turned out being. No reason for it at all. They, I mean, it could have, they could have done anything else. And uh, it would have been, it would have been better than this. So, I want to thank you so much for sending in your thoughts and keeping up with Empire X-Men. I know it's not an easy read or listen. So thank you so, so much. Uh, We're going to go on to a piece from Evan Bevins, who's talking about the Crucible issue, X-Men number seven. And that's that's conversations I always want to have, because that was probably probably the most thought provocative issue that we've covered so far on the show is about one of the hardest episodes I've ever had to put together, and uh, the the feedback on it has been wonderful. Now, Evan says, Here's my two cents on X-Men number 7. I thought it was excellently written and crafted, but boy, did I disagree with a lot of what went on in the story itself. But that's one thing I've appreciated about Hox Pox Docs. You don't have to 100% agree with what's going on to follow and enjoy the story. Some of the stuff Professor X and company are doing makes sense, even if it rubs me the wrong way. Other things seem way over the line, but that doesn't seem to be a case of bad writing. Is it because the mutants have been pushed so far and believe that only extreme measures can protect and preserve them? Are some being manipulated? And, I mean, some sort of manipulation seems to be the show's pet theory. I I think we refer to it as Theory A. Uh, There's almost gotta... Almost, almost gotta be something going on behind the scenes here Because, I mean, there's there's out of character And there's, like, whatever this is Because this is, like, it's almost like a willful ignorance Where it, there almost has to be a, a coercion or a manipulation Behind the way that they're acting here And we'll talk a little bit more about that As we, we work our way through uh, Evan's thoughts here Evan continues I think there was a line of dialogue where Nightcrawler said all he had to do to accept the gifts of Krakoa was give up on what he believed in. It seems like he and Rain have kind of turned their backs on their faith. And while that's understandable from a certain perspective, it's disappointing to me as a Christian to see the ex-characters most associated with that faith appear to cast it aside relatively easily. We may get a flashback or a deeper dive to look into their struggle. We may find out they were nudged psychically. We may find we may have them revert back to their previous beliefs years down the line when a new head of X takes over. And I think, you know, this era will probably be reflected upon as sort of a like a pit stop, where a lot of the changes that occurred here will be swept aside or contradicted by whoever comes next. Which I guess, you know, mileage varies. That might be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, that might just be another way that we'll ultimately wind up comparing the Hickman era to the Morrison era in years to come, wherein we have a lot of high-concept ideas that might just be a little too big for a family of superhero books like the X-Men. Ideas that won't be able to be built upon by whoever's next, because, I mean, I mean, where do we even go from here, right? I feel like a lot of things will be walked back, and there'll be explanations for any sort of hiccups that might might happen along the way. And I feel like, and I'm completely guessing here, but I feel like had Morrison's split with Marvel not been so acrimonious, his new X-Men era wouldn't have gotten, would have gotten like a much more satisfying send-off, right? Instead, what we got was just Joe, Joe Quesada throwing a temper tantrum and swinging a sledgehammer at anything that appeared to have Grant's fingerprints on it while handing his book over to Chuck Austin, who... Hopefully, when Hickman's had his final say on the X-Books, 
he you know won't be <laughs> fighting with Marvel, and he'll be given the opportunity to facilitate whatever is going to come next. Whether that winds up being a more traditional X-Men family of books, or whatever the next evolution might be, whatever, you know, I, I just hope that that Hickman's able to, you know, hand off the baton in a facilitatory sort of way, where it, it's not just going to be like a line in the sand and, hey, everything you just read for four years, done, you know, that's not the that's not our direction anymore, and we're going to make sure you know it. I hope that it's a little bit smoother than that. Or whatever the ultimate revelation is makes sense, is all. Evan continues, House of X wasn't even Nightcrawler's first resurrection. Remember him battling his dad on an afterlife pirate ship in Amazing X-Men? So he's been to heaven and hell. Although, like any concept and occurrence in comics, that can be written away. And yeah, the fact that Nightcrawler and a number of X-Men have been to the afterlife, heaven and hell... It makes it difficult to pay much mind to the skepticism that we're seeing in the Marvel Universe. I always struggle with that in comics. People who have actually met God or Satan claiming to be, like, atheist or agnostic, I I can't wrap my head around that. I mean, I understand it in real life, but not so much in the fantastical Marvel Universe, where, like you said, I mean, they were... They were on on a heavenly pirate ship in the opening arc of Amazing X-Men. I guess whatever afterlife, if any, Nightcrawler or Rain experienced prior to their Gold Ball resurrection, maybe that informs their spiritual worldview from this point on? Which I suppose is going to have to remain to be seen, since we don't know what, if anything, they saw or experienced while in that egg. So it's, it's very, very weird. Evan continues... The Crucible concept makes some in-story sense, but I'm reminded of Sue Richards' X plus 4 remark about how the X-Men seem to value Franklin's life more than Val's because he's a mutant. Maybe it was just Apocalypse taunting Arrow, but I got the vibe that at least some of the occupants of Krakoa think a depowered mutant is less than other mutants. The Scarlet Witch is a pretender to be scorned, but what what she did determines a mutant's value. People hate and fear mutants and are wrong to do so, but a depowered mutant's altered genetic structure, altered through no fault of their own, makes them a second-class citizen. And I gotta say, something that this issue does so well is that it invites theories and discussion. I mean, it demands them almost, right? I'm always going to enjoy discussing this issue and the Crucible concept because it's just so damn thought-provoking. No matter if we agree or disagree with the Crucible being a thing that happens, there's just so much to ponder here. Um, I feel like with every comment or email I get about this issue in particular, I feel like I learn more just via different points of view and the way that people um, receive this issue. So if anybody out there listening has thoughts on X-Men number 7 and you haven't shared them yet, please, please do so, because I'm very, very interested. Um, I think it was very interesting to see that the mutants of Krakoa are acting... They're acting intolerant of someone who's different, right? And I'm not sure if I've commented on this before. I I mean, sure, we've, we've had evil mutants or frustrated, angsty mutants who might refer to humans as flat scans or whatever. But this is different. Um, this is, as Evan put it, you know, the mutants, good, bad, and ugly, they're viewing someone as being lesser than. 
And I mean, we've got Professor Xavier presiding over this ceremony. It's very, very strange. And there's so much to consider and a lot of, a lot of meat on the bone here. I, I, I just, I love talking about this issue. There's so much to get into. Uh, Evan continues. Some of that may, be, may have been Apocalypse's theatrics. I get the rationale for not just greenlighting a mutant killing herself to get her powers back, but we're so concerned with preserving every mutant that will bring back almost anybody, as long as they're not inconvenient clairvoyants. But we won't restore the abilities of mutants who've lost their power through no fault of their own. Seems to me that repowering the living would be a pretty logical thing to do. And yes, Apocalypse kind of goading... Arrow on was interesting, as he was basically forcing her to peg, beg for death. There's certainly theater to that, but also the idea that it it sort of assuages Apocalypse and the rest of the X-Men who are just sitting there watching of any responsibility for what happens next. I mean, Arrow is basically saying that she wants to die. She's asking for it. She's begging for it. Now, one thing I'm not sure of, and this might just be me being a bit dense or just out of the loop on recent pre-Hoxpox X-Books, but can depowered mutants be repowered? Is there a way to do that? Or do some mutants just wind up getting their powers back, like, out of nowhere? Like, how did Jubilee go from being a vampire to back to being, like, a fireworks factory? I don't think she died. I mean, can vampires even die in the first place? I don't know. So I don't really know the protocol for repowering the living. I don't know if that's something that... I don't know if that's a science that they've mastered yet. Or if it's even a science that exists. So I don't know if this is the only way to do it, to bring them back whole. I really don't know. It's interesting interesting to think about. Evan continues. The thing about souls is something I've been wondering about, and I'm glad it was brought up. It all sound, if this all sounds like I'm bashing Hickman and company, I'm not. I think it was well done and raised a lot of questions we've been thinking about. I don't think Hickman is advocating blind acceptance of the new status quo, and questions of whether Xavier has gone too far and whether the ends justify these means are a major part of the story. And, you know, one of the things that Nightcrawler says during this issue that stuck with me is that he's already seeing cracks in the foundation of Krakoa. We know he's on the Quiet Council. We know that he he's one of the most, you know, probably one of the most trusted and beloved characters on this island. So I'm sure he knows things. I'm sure people talk to him. People feel comfortable with him. And he comments that he's already seen cracks, right? I want to say he's the first person to show a measure of skepticism toward the new status quo. So I agree. I don't think Hickman wants us or the characters to blindly accept the new way. There are going to be people who do. There are going to be people who don't. It might be a commentary on faith itself, wherein sometimes we see what we want to because it's comfortable and easy, right? It's easy for a mutant on Krakoa to look at the resurrection protocols and to just stop worrying about death. You don't have to... If you don't want to, you don't have to stop and think about your soul, your mortal soul, your memories, or whatever pain you may experience in death. It's all about the ends. It's all about that quick and easy fix. Basically to say, if you have faith in the Five, in Krakoa, and in Xavier, you'll be saved. Don't worry about anything else. It's easy. for. Uh, it's the path of least resistance. You know, It's everything you could ever want. All you have to do is believe in it. 
So it might be a commentary on faith. I'm not sure, though. I think we're kind of walking a line where, uh, where faith... I don't think faith is being criticized, but I think it's being studied. I think it's being... I don't think it's being advocated or slighted. I think it's just something that's something that's put in our laps, and uh, what we do with it, we do with it. Now, this whole thing overall might be a little too heady for an X-Men comic, um, and perhaps too uncomfortable and commentary-laden for anyone who is struggling with concepts of faith in the real world. But, as I've been saying, and as I'll continue to say, it's definitely an idea that gives us plenty to chew on. There's a lot of meat on that bone. Now, Evan wraps up with a comment on Cyclops and Wolverine. That scene, he says, uh, As far as Cyclops and Wolverine, I take it as Wolverine making the kind of comment you'd expect him to make, and Cyclops, instead of getting mad, coming back with a joke to replace the image in Wolverine's mind with a, shall we say, less pleasant one. They seem to have set a lot of their rivalry aside, recognizing that they have bigger fish than ever to fry. Although at this point, I'm still not sure what exactly the nature of Cyclops and Jean's relationship is. Are they married? Dating? Is there some kind of Krakoa free love thing going on? The way Nightcrawler asked Scott if he'd asked Emma also made me wonder. And yes, this is of course the big Tempest in a tea bag or whatever scene. Um, uh, And sadly, the scene that sort of stole the spotlight from the Crucible in the comics media, because of course it did. The bleeding cool types only seem to care about outrage, and so this short series of panels got all the focus. So far, everyone who's written into the show to discuss this scene has been similarly minded. Uh, It's a joke, but if you wanted to read more into it, you certainly could. No harm, no foul. I think that's what it was meant to be myself, and so far, that's, that's been the overwhelming response. Now, as far as relationship statuses here, uh, they're, they're still kind of up in the air, even to even to this point. I think if I'm gonna if I'm the pick from Evan's choices, there, it's probably closest to the uh, Krakoa free love idea. Um, we've seen Scott and Jean on vacation. We've seen Logan and Jean making out in the hot tub. I think us being questioning is exactly what's expected of us. There is no actual answer. And I'm not sure we'll even ever get one during this era. I definitely could be wrong. And for all I know, post X of Tens, there'll be a huge quadruple wedding or something. But I'm really not holding my breath waiting for answers here. It's, uh, I think, I think this is going to be left purposely nebulous moving forward. But, uh, uh, Evan, I want to thank you so much for such a thoughtful, uh, email about X-Men number seven here. And again, Inviting anyone who's read X-Men number 7 who hasn't written in, or even if you have and you have other thoughts, please share them with, uh, share them with the class, because this is probably the most interesting issue so far to discuss, so any ideas are great. And we're going to wrap up with a message from Al Sedano, who's talking about Excalibur number 2 way, way back. He says, sorry it's been so long, it's been a busy month, but anyway, it's time for Excalibur number 2. Yay? And uh, never apologize I know, especially, you know, Christmas month It's going to be busy, so no, no worries Uh, Al continues First of all, when are they going to give us A Shogo Joy Boy crossover That we need? This just has to happen at some point in the series Plus, it would be the perfect crossover Between this show and From Claremont to Claremont Now, Joy Boy Is a member of TechNet And it's the, uh, if you're familiar with TechNet But not 
familiar with the names of the TechNet members, this is that baby, that kind of fat baby who floats around in a ball or in a like a half bed, kind of looks like a turtle shell, but floats around in it and uh, has mind control powers or has euphoric powers or something like that. But uh, me and uh, Jesse Starcher have been having a good time with uh, Joy Boy over in the Alan Davis Excalibur issues and From Claremont to Claremont. So I think I think Al is 100% dead on here. We need a Shogo and Joy Boy crossover. I think that could be the new boom era. And uh, all the uh, comic speculation apps will go wild. And uh, everybody will be getting their 9.7 uh, copies uh, slabbed because that'll be a big issue. Big, big issue. Al continues, In all seriousness, this issue wasn't badly done, but it was confusing. I really wasn't sure what was happening. I'm hoping future issues make more sense. And yes, we're dealing with, uh, you know, Betsy and the Druids, and Betsy seeing things that nobody else can see at this point, and Rogue is, you know, sleeping, and... Yeah, this was a, a tough start for the Excalibur series, which really doesn't... You know, we talk a lot about writing for the trade, and there are a lot of different ways we can take something like that. Writing for the trade could be a pacing thing, or it could be like a, a revelatory thing, you know, where revelations only are only satisfying if you read everything in one clump. With these early issues of Excalibur, we don't really get explanations until the very end. So it's hard to read these as individual chapters with any sort of space in between, because... They're not satisfying, and as Al said, they are confusing. You, you just don't know what's happening. So, uh, no worries, though. Future issues will make more sense. They may not be as fun to read, because we are still with, you know, Morgan Le Fay in, in Otherworld, but they'll make sense. Everything will sort of kind of come around, and then it will just go completely insane when that weirdo Jamie Braddock gets involved. But if you're still listening at this point, you, you know that. You know that already, but uh, Al wraps up with, also, just to vote on it, I loved the Kulan Goth story. Ugh. Yeah, the Kulan Goth story <laughs> from, boy, it was like the late 100s, so like 188, 190-ish of Uncanny X-Men. Uh, Kulan Gath is a uh, Conan villain, I believe, or a Conan bad guy, uh, who showed up... I think the first time I saw him was in Avengers Volume 3, still the Busick Perez era. People made a huge deal about Cool and Gath coming back, and uh, that's when I learned about the two or three issue run where uh, he was in the X Men books, too. And I, I yeah, I'm never going to be about that stuff. Uh, I, I feel kind of left out with all the Conan stuff going on at Marvel now that I have absolutely no interest in it. I feel like I'm out of the loop. Uh, just like a few years ago when all the Star Wars stuff came back and everybody was excited and I could care less. I felt left out. I felt bad because I felt like I was missing out on history. But I also didn't want to just jump in on something I didn't care about because I do enough of that as it is. I don't need to do that anymore. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for keeping up and uh, for checking in, Al. I very much appreciate it. I can't wait until you get to X-Men number 7 so you can let us know your thoughts on that as well. But uh, that's all the email for today. If anybody would like to write in, uh, please feel free to do so. You can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. You can talk to us about whatever you want over on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. 
And you can listen to a whole bunch of stuff with my voice on it if you want over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That'll do it for today. Uh, next time, uh, we're going to do some X Forcing and uh, still on the path to X of 10. So, looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. Uh, one giant thank you to everyone for sharing their time with me today. Uh, it's always very appreciated and uh, very humbling. So, thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 103 of X Lapsed, where we are back on the path to X of Tens here with an issue of Marauders. Let's get right on into it here. This is Marauders number 12, had a November 2020 cover date. Story's called The New Phase. Hey, we know someone who phases. Uh, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali. Colors, Edgar Delgado. Letters, VCs Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Robinson, Amaro, White, Sobolski are our editors, and this had a cover price of $3.99 and went on sale September 9th of 2020. Now, we open, and before we actually get into the opening here, um, I do want to say that I love this cover. Very, very striking cover here. I even, like, briefly considered using it as a uh, as an X-lapsed logo, sort of, like... It's, if you haven't seen this one, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you have, you probably know why. It, it's just a very striking cover. It's it's Kitty Pride or Kate, call me Kate, with her fists out. And instead of it saying whatever it used to say on her, on her uh, knuckle tats, it now says Kill Shaw, right? And it's just a very, very good-looking cover here. And I thought about maybe, you know, taking it. Getting rid of Kill Shot and putting like an X hyphen L A P S E D, you know, it's X lapsed. Putting X lapsed on her knuckles. Thought it might be a neat little look there. Maybe one of these days I will. I, I you know, I, I do like playing with my image manipulation uh, applications. So maybe I'll uh, make a project out of that for a, a rainy day or something. But with a fairly striking cover out of the way, let's get on in the inside here. 
Now we open with Call Me Kate surrounded by a bunch of mutants that she doesn't really recognize all that well. Emma tells her, hey, look around, because it's all those mutant refugees that the Hellfire Trading Company has rescued. They're all here for her. Storm shows up and does that weird culty thing that she's been doing since Hoxpox began upon every new resurrection. And hey, okay, 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 I got a bit of obscure X trivia for you that we're breaking new ground here. We are, I mean, oof. You're going to want to get this episode bagged, boarded, slapped because we're getting some really good obscure information here. Did you know that this one time Kitty Pride was scared by Storm's mohawk? Yeah, I bet you didn't. But it gets its dozenth or so mentioned in like six months right here. So that's how we know that Kate is Kate. Uh, Storm hugs Kitty and comments on her knuckle tats, which I still hate. Uh, the culty mutant chant commences, and we're off to the races. Roll call. Call me Kate, Lockheed, Emma Frost, Storm, and Sebastian Shaw. Then an info page, and it's a communication between Bishop and Beast. They seem to know that there is a, quote, bad actor on Krakoa who was responsible for Kitty's death. They don't know who that is, or they, at least they don't mention who that is, but uh, they have an idea that this was an inside job, which, I mean, is a step in the right direction. From here we get back to comics, and Kitty and Emma are on horseback on the beach. They talk about everything that's brought them here today, you know, Kitty's death and whatnot. Kitty asks to see what Emma learned from Lockheed. You know, Lockheed was the witness to, uh, to Call Me Kate's murder, and Emma found out everything that went down, and Kitty would like to get a glance, so she does. She gets to see it all. Emma then reveals that she has a plan, how they're going to get even with Sebastian Shaw. But Kitty also has a plan, and it seems like it might be a far more sadistic one. And she lets Emma read her mind, and Emma is at first shocked, but then delighted. The pair then head somewhere, where there's a party in progress. And I mean, when isn't there a party on Krakoa? We see plenty of notables from both the Marauders book and the X-Men overall, like Cyclops is here, Kid Cable's here. A Wolverine shows up, and he congratulates Kitty on popping her resurrection cherry, which seems inappropriate. Um, though, if I'm remembering right, I'm pretty sure Joss Whedon had Wolverine congratulating her on popping a... Uh, uh, never mind. I'm not going there, but I'm pretty sure that actually happened. Um, Nightcrawler pops in. Uh, speaking of popping, he shares an embrace with Kitty. Uh, he hands over her Star of David necklace, which he mentions was almost given to the sea during that Viking funeral we had last issue. They talk a bit about having a lot to talk about, which makes me assume that the Way of X title was probably already in the talking stages at this point, though I could be wrong. It's a lot of talk of faith and Nightcrawler kind of being uneasy, which seems to be the premise for this Way of X uh, ongoing, or I think it's an ongoing, maybe it's a mini. Who knows? The Way of X book is what I'm trying to say. Kitty talks about her inability to use the Krakoan gates and how that initially, well, it pissed her off. But now, that seems like it was a lifetime ago, because it was, and she doesn't seem all that interested. Now, this train of thought is interrupted by the arrival of magic and a mariachi band. Okay, I mean, I don't know if there's an inside joke that I'm missing here. Uh, if anybody knows that if Kitty and Ileana have a penchant for mariachi music, let me know. Uh, Magic curses a bit before tackling Kitty to the ground in an embrace. 
Now this is interrupted by the arrival of the man with the least self-awareness on the entire island, Sebastian Shaw. He and Kitty share an icy embrace, and then Shaw hands over an aged bottle of whiskey so he knows exactly who he's dealing with. Kitty takes a swig before handing the rest over to Logan. Then she and Ilyana give an Irish goodbye and bug out of Dodge. We next meet up with them, and uh, Kitty's eating a hamburger, and they're standing outside a tattoo shop, because of course they are. She heads in, and it's about closing time, but she asks if uh, if the tattoo artist would uh, fit her in, because she wants new knuckle tats, because of course she does. Only these aren't the same tattoos, which... What was... It, I don't remember what they even, what they even said. <laughs> I don't remember what... Was it stay down? Nah. I don't remember what they said, but she doesn't want the same thing, so it really doesn't matter. These knuckle tats will, as the cover suggests, read Kill and Shaw. Okay, now uh, she makes out with the female tattooist after the deed is done, for reasons, and then heads out. She asks for directions to the harbor while dramatically showing the camera what her knuckles now say. Okie dokie, um... And then we wrap up with our double-page spread of creds, so we're a little little wonky, a little out of order here, but that's the issue. Next episode, we'll be talking about X-Factor number three. Eh? Okay, but first, let's talk about this one. I hate to say it. It breaks my heart to say it. I really didn't care for this. Um, to me, this is very reminiscent of... Uh, I think it was Marauders number two. Uh, the only issue of the series to this point that I really didn't care for, and it all comes down to Kitty. I'm not sure what her character is supposed to be here, but whatever it is, I don't like it. Um, we do get some of the like sort of classic X-Men feels here, you know, the camaraderie, the family, the the brother and sisterhood. But at the same time, it feels kind of manufactured to me. Like, everyone here was going through the motions and acting exactly as we'd expect them to? I mean, does that make sense? I mean, on its face, that's a good thing, right? Uh, people acting in character. That's a good thing. That's something I usually applaud. But here, it felt very much like... automated, you know? Just autopilot going through the motions. Uh, it almost... And I don't know if I've used this analogy before. I probably have. I, I repeat myself a lot. It felt like we're watching like the seventh season of a sitcom where everyone has their character tics and eccentricities and rather than actually having characterization, we just get those character tics and eccentricities. This scene, at least to me, wanted to project that nebulous X factor we talk about. We know we talk about it on the show a lot. Heart. You know, it wanted to project heart. Went through the motions to do so, but to me, it kind of missed the mark. And I really hate saying that because this is such a strong comic book. Um, but here, I just, I just didn't get any emotion. I didn't get any... I don't know, it just didn't feel... And we, and we talk a lot about the value of life, right? Uh, in, in the Dawn of X books here, how it... Death is being brushed off like it's nothing, because it kind of is. And the, the, there's... I felt like we had more relief over Kitty being alive last issue than we had here. Here it was just like, hey, congratulations on popping your resurrection cherry. 
and Ilyana saying like Kate effing pride and then hopping on. I, it just didn't feel. It felt like, like the first day back at school rather than, hey, this person's alive again. It, it I don't know. It just didn't work for me. Um, I get what they were going for, and it was close, but it just missed for me. Um, let's talk knuckle tats, because uh, of course we got to. Um, now, are we gonna believe? That Kitty is planning on going through the rest of her life with Kill and Shaw on her fists. Is that really the kind of person she is? That she's become? Uh, To give someone she hates permanent residence on her body? That seems a little extreme. Or, part of me wonders, since Kitty now knows she can be resurrected via the resurrection protocols... Is she maybe not planning on being around all that long? Is her taking down Shaw also, is it like a kamikaze mission? Is she expecting to die while taking Shaw out? Because she knows she'll be able to come back. And she won't have Kill and Shaw on her fist when she comes back. I guess we'll find out. Um, really not much more to say about this one. I mean, it, was, it was beautiful to look at. Uh, but overall, I... I I said it before, I think this one largely missed the mark. It over-relied on X-Men tropes without building on any of them, and featured a character whose characterization I can't really put my finger on. You know, it was pretty, and it gets us from point A to point B, but for me personally, this was kind of a letdown. Didn't hate it, it just, uh, kind of a letdown. Um... Hey, I'm not going to love every issue, even from series that I consider to be the, you know, some of the top quality stuff we're getting in comics these days. There's going to be hits, there's going to be misses, uh, and this one's probably just a miss for me. But it is what it is, and uh, that's all I really got to say about it. Now let's head into the mailbag here, and we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number 11. He says, I'll start by wondering why there isn't an X of Ten's label on this book. It literally explains who some of the characters in X are. I read the crossover before this issue, and I just thought the different priestesses were involved in different parts of the story for no particular reason. This issue explains what they're, what they're there for. It also features a moment between Betsy and Saturnine, which sets up the whole crossover. You can read and enjoy X of Tens without this, like I did, but it adds to the story, unlike X-Force, which is completely irrelevant. Who was making the marketing decisions for Marvel Comics? They clearly haven't read the books. That's something that I've wondered for a long, long time, because I, I, I don't know what... I mean, I've made comments about how we have so many people listed in the creative positions in these books, uh, from from art directors to chief creative officers to editors, assistant editors, associate editors, group editors, editors-in-chief. And still... <laughs> I mean, stuff like this goes down. I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I that's all far, far above my pay grade. So I couldn't even pretend to to tell you what any of these people do and who makes the decisions and why they make them. But uh, it's interesting that so much of went of what went down in this issue has is basically planting seeds for the for the big upcoming crossover here. I didn't expect it, and. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan. You guys know I'm not a big fan of the other world stuff. I'm not a huge fan of uh, Saturnine, but I've heard a lot of good things. So let's uh, <laughs> let's remain positive. 
Uh, Damien continues, The way both battles ended was a bit weird, but I didn't notice it until you mentioned it. I suppose I'm used to the, wor- the rules of Otherworld being completely arbitrary, so I excuse plot holes in a way I might not in another story. My headcanon is that the priestesses stop pointless fights. So in the first encounter, they end it when they discover that Excalibur wants to protect Jubilee and Shogo, so they are on the same side. The second battle ends when the gateway is built. They're fighting to prevent it. Why keep fighting when you've lost? And that there's... I, I think your headcanon is, uh, is smart. <laughs> I think it's a uh, good way to be because I was just so frustrated reading it because I didn't... I. It felt like just a series of unconnected vignettes that somehow were supposed to be a story. I didn't understand why it, we'd get like, okay, we have we need a fight here, so we'll just do a, a one splash page, and then we'll move on to something else. It felt very, very strange. I think I refer to it as the other world effect in the show notes, just as a you know, as a lampshade for it. It's just like, I gotta explain it some way because they didn't bother to in the book, but I think your I think your headcanon is the right canon, and that's what I'm gonna be going with from this point on. So, anytime Otherworld acts weird, we will uh, we will go back to to this uh, <laughs> to this uh, little bit here. Damien continues, The externals did surprise me, but I seem to remember that Richter was involved in the story that got rid of them, so it's at least relevant to his experience. Also, they had to set up Kandra's amulet to be stolen in the postscript. I'm assuming, I'm presuming it's the same gem that Rogue and Gambit find in Saturnine's closet. And yes, I totally, I totally missed that. I totally overlooked that. It's, I'm like 98% sure that that, uh, that the gem that Gambit and Rogue found in the closet was Kandra's life essence or whatever. I mean, because why wouldn't it be? It, ha- it would have to be. Otherwise, it's really, really ridiculous. And Kandra is tied up in some of the more boring aspects of Gambit, you know, the, the guilds and whatnot. So definitely, it's definitely got to be that. And mea culpa for, for missing that, because I, I should have gotten that. I should have, I definitely should have gotten that. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Overall, I enjoyed this despite its flaws. I remain impressed by how consistently good Marcus Toe and Eric Arshinaiga are. The, bu- the book is beautiful. And I agree. Uh, they are definitely doing the heavy lifting even in months they don't have to. <laughs> you know, where sometimes the story is really good and the art is just fantastic. And then sometimes the story is kind of lacking, but the art is still fantastic. So very, very good stuff here. And uh, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on this uh, somewhat confusing issue, issue for me. <laughs> Speaking of confusing, uh, we got a message from Jason Colby, who is going to defend Empire colon X-Men. Now, Jason says, I'm listening to your podcast in arrears. Another show I follow calls this disreputable practice time banditing. So I'm just now hearing you talk about the above mentioned issue, and I felt compelled to chime in and never worry about listening in clumps, listening late. I'm just happy people are listening. It's all good. Um, Jason continues, I must admit, I kind of loved Empire colon X-Men. It's completely silly. It telegraphs its deep shallowness right from the get-go by giving us a character named Rutabaga and a title page that calls back to a farcical tower defense computer game from a dozen years ago. I was a particularly ripe audience for this approach because of how much I was not liking the main Empire story. 
how bloated, over-serious, retread the same ground, and just plain generic Marvel event overloaded it was. So a book inside the Marvel Universe, but on the outskirts of the event, winking at the event and taking the piss out of the event while the event was going on, was right up my alley. Throw the Golden Girls into the mix? Go for it. We're all having fun here and none of this matters or will ever be spoken of again, so why not? Well, when you put it that way... No, no, I still hated this. (laughs) I still hated this. Maybe because I wasn't reading the main Empire story, uh, or maybe because... These are books you're supposed to spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes with, and I spend entire days with them. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that's my problem all along. But, uh, no, you're right that this is... I mean, this wasn't serious. I don't know how serious Empire, you know, Prime was. Uh, I could imagine. I am a veteran of many Marvel events, and, I mean, how far can you keep topping themselves, right? It's... It's always the most dire circumstances, and they're even more dire than they were two months ago with the last event, and and so on and so forth. So I could see this miniseries uh, being somewhat of a let-up, right? It's like a popcorn book where you could just enjoy yourself. You could just put your feet up and get a story that's tied in, but not as, I mean, you said... Over, bloated, over-serious, and retreading the same ground, which is basically Marvel events. So I can totally understand appreciating it on that level. But personally, I, I still hated it. <laughs> I still disliked it quite a bit. <laughs> Jason continues, It did seem a bit of a waste to take the dangling thread of the pretender, Wando Maximoff, public mutant enemy number one, which had been dangled way back in Pox and use her up in this farce. But other than that, I was totally on board here. And it's true. Uh, Wanda, the usage of Wanda here, like, I don't I don't know why they even, it feels like something that they gave away, right? Because, I mean, there is a story there. No matter how little I care to see the Scarlet Witch again, and how tired and fatigued as I am of the No More Mutants thing, unless unless it's Deadpool making a comical sign to put on Staten Island, I still feel like it's a story worth telling, especially with all the stuff we've got going on with Exodus. And uh, the fact that, I mean, she is, as you said, she is public enemy number one. To use her in this sort of way, where she kind of... She kind of slips on a banana peel into screwing things up even more. I don't know. I mean, and she, of course, she was well intentioned. She's trying to make, uh, you know, she's trying to make amends. But still, there, there is definitely, whether I want it or not, there's definitely a Wanda story somewhere in our futures. Jason continues. As an aside, I'm frankly stunned to learn from your podcast that Explodey Boy was not a pre-existing mutant character. I've met the very similar Boom Boom, who can make things go boom. And also, stop me if you've heard this one before, she's had quite a few alternate code names. Yes, I've heard that. I've heard that. I've met Beak, who has a beak. I've met Strong Guy, who is a strong guy. I've met Gold Balls, who, uh, oh, I'll stop there. Anyway, it never occurred to me that Explodey Boy might not be a real character. Probably one created by either Scott Lobdell or Grant Morrison on an off day. Sir, you have disillusioned me. Yes. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> Explody Boy was all new for Empire colon X-Men, which is one of the reasons why it kind of got under my skin so much here. It was like they went for like the the lowest hanging fruit here with such a silly name. This is like a Trapper Keeper character, you know? This is someone that you'd make to to be LOL random and you give him a stupid name <laughs> and a stupid power. Uh, I, like I said, I, I liked his scene in Empire Number 4. I thought that was a decent scene, but sometimes the journey ain't worth the destination. <laughs> it's just not great here. I do wonder if we'll ever see Explody Boy again, because I could, I could see him showing up again. I could see him being part of a team. <laughs> I just kind of hope he doesn't. Uh, Jason continues. Now, here's a news hook. As I write this, it's less than a day since I opened up my digital issue of Sword number 2. Now, Sword is going to be something launching post-X of Tens for us here. And Jason picked up number 2. He says, I mostly avoid previews, so I was shocked and appalled to see that the second issue of this brand new X title is a friggin' king in friggin' black tie-in. Then I did a quick Google and was even more shocked and thrice as appalled to learn that issues 2, 3, and 4 of this brandy new X title are all friggin' King in friggin' Black tie-ins. Yeah, it sucks when they do that, doesn't it? <laughs> Welcome to Marvel. Um, yeah, I, I don't look at the previews very often either. But I do uh, order my books every month from a discount comic book service. And for all the King and Black issues and tie-ins, they, they've been putting a little code. And it's a really, really difficult code. It's a KIB. So every single King and Black tie-in has KIB in the, in the title. So you know to pick it up if you're, if you're a completionist or a sadist or someone who uh, has a spending problem i don't know or maybe you're maybe you're just going to send them all the way to get slabbed uh, 9.6 so uh, you'll you'll be uh, able to retire when you're uh, 70 but yes i know that these sword issues are king and black tie-ins there's also going to be a marauders king and black tie-in um i want to say we have another x book that's tying in with it as well and no i'm not looking forward to it um Yes, we're going to cover them because I'm an idiot, but uh, yeah, this is something Marvel does, and it really sucks. I think when I covered uh, Deadpool the other day, I mentioned that the like the second ongoing of Deadpool actually launched at a secret invasion. So it was like you'd get this brand new Deadpool number one, and it's a secret invasion tie-in, and it just it stinks when they do that, but they. But they do that, they do it pretty often. Jason continues in parentheses to say, Here, please imagine a sighing sound that conveys simultaneous irritation, indignation, regret over $3.99 that I'll never see again, and yet also relief that this is now one X title I can write off and not worry about until perhaps maybe when it hits Marvel Unlimited. Is anyone out there reading King in Black? Anybody listening? Are you keeping up with King in Black? I've seen... A couple of the issues in the shop, but uh, I really have no interest in picking them up here. I think it's a Venom thing, because what isn't a Venom thing these days? But uh, 
let us know if you're reading King and Black, if you're looking forward to the sword tie-ins and the marauder tie-in, and uh, if there's any other tie-in that you might be uh, looking forward to. Or if uh, you'll be skipping those episodes when we get to them. Uh, Jason continues, In theory, I like the idea of the X-World more firmly ensconced within the larger Marvel Universe. In practice, though, I'm struggling to think of recent times when I've been pleased with the results. I guess this is just a part of the problem with all Western, massively shared universe comics. We want it all to hold together, but we also want to forget about the parts of the universe or of continuity that are crap. Probably no perfect solution here, but one easy rule of thumb I might suggest is don't start off a brand new title spinning out of one event by immediately tying its first entire arc into a completely separate event. (laughs) Sorry for yelling. That was all in caps, by the way. I didn't want to yell too loud, though. So he had to get that off his chest. But perhaps you could comment on the merits of event tie-in miniseries a la X-Men colon Empire versus events just taking over an issue or more of an existing series. Yeah, um... (laughs) Personally, I come from a time in in the comics industry where editorial fiefdoms were a thing. Like, editors would have their characters, and they still do to this day, but... Back then, the line of demarcation was so much thicker, right? I mean, you'd have the X-Men books, you'd have the Avengers books, you'd have the Spider books, you'd have the 2099 books. Everything was its own thing, and there were crossovers on occasion, but they meant something. Except when Wolverine was involved, because he was everywhere. But for the most part, like if you saw the Avengers and the X-Men teaming up... It was an event. It was something they were building to. It wasn't just, oh, in this issue, the the X-Men are going to see the Avengers, or the Avengers are going to see the X-Men, or the Inhumans are going to... It was something more special. That's the way I like my comics. I like the X-Men being part of the Marvel Universe, but not inside the Marvel Universe. You know, I like them on the same planet and in the same universe, but into their own thing. Because they are different characters. They are very differently toned. Their stories are much different. Their struggles are different. I like them being left to their lonesome. And when they do cross over, I want it to be special. So when we have these mass crossover events, which, I mean, we go back to Civil War, we go back to Fear Itself, Secret Invasion, uh... The, the the dark what the dark age crap the dark rain that they did um, AVX uh, Axis all these things that have these tie-ins and these miniseries and these crossovers and it makes it so nothing really matters because if every issue is like a super special thing then none of the issues are special anymore because they're all the same thing I don't like the idea of crossing everybody into every event. I understand the marketing side of it. I understand the a little bit of the editorial side of it. I, I guess the editorial side, I understand just the storytelling part, I don't. Um, of course, I mean, we're trying to talk about this as art versus commerce, or, you know. And it's a hard thing to do, because, of course, they got to make money. So if they can milk a few more buys by throwing a King in Black logo on anything, they're going to do it. And unfortunately, we're going to get caught in that crossfire. If we are, A, completionists like I am, uh, B, have a stupid show like I do, 
Or C, you just want to be a part of the entire thing, right? You want to follow something. I've been in that boat many, many times. Even post-Marvel Zombiehood, if there's a, an event that I want to be all in on, I'm going to buy everything about it. Uh, Spider Island, back uh, in like 2011, 2012, I decided that I wanted to be all in on that, so I bought everything Spider Island. So weird miniseries that weren't very good, <laughs> really weren't all that pertinent, uh, all the amazing Spider-Man issues involved, everything. I was a completionist for that event. So it's a toughie because, uh, you know, Marvel knows where their bread's butted, so they're going to do whatever they can to keep to keep zhuzhing it and keep people buying the books that they otherwise may not have, and it stinks. It really does. I, I don't know much about S.W.O.R.D., since it's hitting after X of Swords, I'm assuming that Swords, Swords... I, I'm assuming there's a reason for it. <laughs> and uh, I have the first issue, which I flipped through, and it looks like it's going to be a mighty slog. But uh, we'll worry about that another day. But when we take a book like Sword, right, and we start it in, I'm assuming, X of Tens, giving it one issue to just introduce itself and then going right into King and in Black, that tells me that... Sword doesn't really have a reason to exist as an ongoing series. If everything about it has to be ensconced, as you said, in an event, then what happens when there's no event? Well, I mean, I mean, it's Marvel. There's going to be an event all the time. But is this just going to be an event book? Is this going to be a book that just ties into every event? I mean, we have we have a, we have a pattern of behavior here. It's a small one. But we do have one. I wonder what's going to happen come Sword Number Five, Sword Number Six, where hopefully King and Black will be over with. What then? We've had one issue that's not tied into anything. So wh where do we go? I don't know. But by then, Marvel will have like the twenty-five bucks we spend on the book by then, so they don't care, and it'll just be whatever. Uh, now, Jason wraps up with, So, until Donnie Cates reveals that Krakoa is really just a breakaway province of the planet Clintar, make my next last. I don't know what Clintar is, and I don't think I want to. But thank you <laughs> so, so much for writing in, especially since you're the first person to say something nice about Empire X-Men. So it's really, really cool to hear an opposing view or just another view. So thank you so, so much for that. Next up, Andrew Franklin is talking about X-Men number 11, another Empire issue. This is the issue that was tied into both X of Tens and Empire. And Andrew says, I totally agree that this was a great way to do an Empire tie-in. I still didn't really care for the issue, though. I understand why this series, X-Men Volume 5, has so often made you rethink doing this show. I think it's pretty awful, even if this issue isn't the worst one. I still found it to be cold and distant. I thought the dialogue was bad. The creepy cult-like nature of the framing scenes turns me off. The Arako stuff does to me what the, quote, generic antler-headed aliens did for you in Avengers. <laughs> yes, what a, <laughs> here's a callback to my uh, one of my main complaints about, uh, not complaints so much, but an observation or trepidations about reading something by Jonathan Hickman because I don't want to get back into the skin in the game uh, discussion here, but... With his Avengers, it's like his new addition to the Avengers lore is these boring, generic, antler-headed aliens. It's like, who cares? Who cares? Not me. But I understand. I totally understand because the Summoner character, while creepy and off-putting, he is pretty generic, right? I mean, he's just 
a creepy dude. Um, and yes, X-Men Volume 5 has been the book to make me rethink doing the show a few times, a few times here. What really sucks about the volume is that when it's good, you can't touch it. I mean, it's beyond good. Uh, X-Men number 6 and number 7, I mean... Those are just excellent comic books, and they they inspire so much conversation. They they make us ask so many questions. They keep you tuned in. They keep you engaged. And then we'll have you know, Brew eating the egg, and we'll have Empire tie-ins with Vulcan and his friends getting drunk. And this one, while I did quite enjoy it, I'll give it to you. This was. Cold and Distant. Cold and Distant is a very good way to do this because it doesn't feel like we're getting to see... When we talk about, and I talk about thought balloons, right? Getting into the, the minds of these characters. Now we just don't do that anymore because it's too comic booky. This would have been a good issue for that. Having Magneto think. Getting into his head and thinking. I think that would have softened and it would have warmed the issue. Him knowing what he has to do in order to save his people. Him knowing that he is, like, he is the brick wall, right? He has got to stop these aliens from doing what they want to do. And he's going to do it by any means necessary. And he's going to do it by being a master, you know, strategist, easy for me to say. And also just having really badass powers. The fact that we don't get into his head... And instead, we get magic saying, hey, can you get up off your old ass? And, Ma- and Magneto going, yeah, sure, let me put on my red gear, and then dropping dropping anvils on a guy. I could definitely see uh, that seeming cold. And I, and I agree. I do agree. Andrew continues, I did like the way the team combined their powers in the fight. That reminded me of when Cyclops would tell the team to do maneuver Z11 or some such, and it makes sense that the Krakoans would have power synchronization strategies. I also like Magneto crashing the satellites down on the plant guy. Yes, that was really cool. Very, very cool scene. Really played to Lionel Yu's uh, strengths as an artist. Uh, just, and it was great seeing the X-Men working together. They, you know, using their powers in tandem here, using, playing up their strengths, right? I mean, you had Iceman and Magma doing what they did to a volcano to make shards. I mean, it was really, really well done, uh, you know, strat- strategically. Easy for me to say again. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, I don't like to be so negative without really anything else to say, but this book really just defeats me. I'm glad that you liked it as much as you did, though, and that goes for anyone else who thinks it's great. It's just not for me. So until I feel otherwise, make my next lapsed. Well, thank you so much. And I definitely feel like that's the kind of the healthiest tack to take. Um, not all these books are going to be for us. I mean, next issue, next episode, we have X Factor again, which I don't want to say I'm dreading it, but, you know, I'm more dreading the process, right? If it's something I don't care for, I need to try to remain... Um, even with it, even keeled with it, and uh, make sure that I emphasize the fact that I'm not judging a book by its quality, I'm judging a book by its applicability to me, right? Uh, just like the book we're discussing today, Marauders Number 12, I happen to know for a fact that there's a certain listener to this program who loved this issue. 
and someone I 90% of the time I agree with wholeheartedly. Here's an issue that just wasn't for me. It's, you know, just the way it's going to be sometimes, I guess. But uh, thanks again. And uh, we're going to wrap up with a missive from our friend Evan Bevins regarding Giant Size Magneto. He says, Magneto and Giant Size number 2 at a dinner party with Emma Frost, how fancy, and Wolverine number 3 may be the greatest evidence of mutant minds being altered. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't snicker when he passed out and Wolverine stole his helmet. No reason for it to happen, and it was really out of character for Magneto, but I'm an easy mark, I guess. You know, I didn't so much mind the fact that it happened. You know, if this story happens in a vacuum, I'm all about it, right? It's a funny haha. You know, it's 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 you know it's messing with the straight, right? It's Magneto's usually uptight, wound up, and here he is a little sloshed. If it were more novel, that's fine. But the fact that just about every Dawn of X book we read has someone getting sloppy drunk. It just feels petulant. It feels so repetitive, and it's like, okay, we get it. We get it, you know? It's. I think I compared it once to, like, that one friend you have who wants everyone to know that they smoke weed, and so every conversation goes back to the fact that they smoke weed, and it's like, okay, dude, we get it. We're fine with it. Go ahead and do your thing, but just stop mentioning it over and over again because that's all you ever talk about. Here in the Dawn of X books, it's like if some if we get a book where someone's not holding a bottle or not passed out in a corner, it's I don't know that we've had one yet. <laughs> so if this were in a vacuum and if we had Wolverine getting Magneto drunk, I, I would have probably chuckled at it. But instead, it's uh, you know Magneto is just like the fifty fifth mutant to get drunk in that month of X books and. It just gets a, a little much. Gets to be a little much. Evan continues, Magneto relaxing, letting his guard down, could show that this is one of the first times mutants actually can. Very, very interesting. Still, without knowing what Emma wants to do with her island, it seems odd for Magneto to act as her realtor or glorified gopher. And that's very true. I do wonder what's going to happen with that island or if we're going to see that island again. Something I've been, like, thinking about in in the back of my own muddled mind here is, like, these giant-sized books, like, they almost feel like Earth 2 stories, right? They only really apply to themselves. We're not getting mentions of them anywhere outside of these books here. You know, Storm's sick, but we wouldn't know it from Marauders. Nightcrawler and company bring Lady Mastermind into the fold when we saw her come through the Krakoan portal during Hoxpox. Um, Phantom X is now involved Magneto's buying islands for Emma Frost It feels like it's its own thing Like, does this even matter? Will these ever be touched upon in the main books? Or I, I just don't know uh, I'm wondering if maybe this island will come back into play in Giant Size Storm Like, to maybe put a bow on it Maybe Lady Mastermind will get involved And Phantom X will get involved Well, we know he'll be involved, but... It just seems like a very strange cluster of stories that that are kind of big events in and of themselves, but they're not getting mentioned anywhere else. So it makes you wonder, are they even happening? Storm's dying. And starring in Marauders, where she's perfectly healthy. Very, very weird stuff here. So I guess we'll see if that island will get another mention in, I think, 
think about four episodes we'll be wrapping up the giant sizes so we'll look forward to that and we will uh, we'll hope for the best i guess but uh, that's where we'll leave it for the mailbag today i want to thank everyone for writing in and sharing their thoughts and if you would like to do so as well please please feel free to you can find me a couple different ways you can find me on twitter at ace comics or hit me up on the old gmail box at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com for blog posts and show notes, you can find stuff over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. If you want to chat us up on Facebook, you could do so at facebook.com forward slash 90sxmen. It's one of the slashes. Whatever slash you put in an internet address, I don't know which one it is. I think it's forward slash. Backslash? I don't know. 90sxmen is the group. So if you're on Facebook, look for that. And you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Yeah.